All right, it's the DT difference. It's 30 years experience in the game. DT systems. E-collars we've been using for a while now, but let's quickly talk about their dummy launchers. They got the Super Pro dummy launcher and the remote dummy launcher. It's a great way for you and your dog to get ready for duck season. Loud bangs. Make sure your dog's cool with gunfire before you use it. But I want you to add it to your repertoire, bag of tricks, and get you and your dog ready for duck season. It's the Super Pro Dummy Launcher by DT. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. Have you wondered if you want to force fetch your dog? Maybe you think your dog's too soft. Maybe you're too nervous to screw, quote unquote, screw your dog up. Let me help you. I built a start to finish course with different dogs, different breeds, and different personalities from start to finish to show you how that you and your dog can do it successfully and easy. Jump in. Links in the description. We'd be happy to help you. Let's go. Let's set goals and get you and your dog where you want to be this duck season. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another wonderful episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. Thank you for joining us tonight. First up, Yukonuba, baby. Tonight's episode, we are going to hit home a little bit about nutrition and what your dog needs to be fueled up. So there's different blends for your dog. There's different blends for the needs that they have in the field and in the home. And uh, our special guest tonight is going to hit hit that for us. So if you're interested, Yukonuba, baby. Hey, man's best kennel. All right. Nobody understands the unspoken bond more than Gunner Kennels. They've literally designed the safest, the best kennel for the dog that's right in your backseat, right in the bed of your truck. Lock them down, strap them in. The Gunner Kennel is going to protect them. The cool part about Gunner 2 is they're innovating other products. So, you know, old Buck, he's getting older. He's a little bit arthritic. They've got orthopedic pads for the kennel. They've got regular mats for the kennel for that younger dog, um, tie-down straps, all that good stuff. Gunner Kennel, innovating our industry, and trust me when I tell you, they're protecting your dog when you're rolling down the road, baby. Next up is Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This is a group of people that host our podcast, and they also host a boatload of other outdoor influencers and podcasts. So when I say boatload, I mean it in the literal way, fishing, hunting, hiking, all that good stuff. So if you're interested in learning more, check out Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Next up, smoke them if you got them, baby, Traeger Grills. Traeger, big thank you to them. They love the outdoors. They love dogs, and they understand the unspoken bond, and they like smoking meat. What more can you ask for? Kevin smoked some meat this weekend. I can't wait to get home back to New York and try mine out. So thank you, Traeger, for believing us. Let's roll it out in 2020. And lastly, 
I want to give a little support to me and the Lone D, baby. Guys, I want to say thank you to everybody who's checked out the website and grabbed some gear. So we've got hats, T-shirt, hoodies, training equipment, all that good stuff, and I have seen you all support us. So I just want to give a little little tidbit that we're coming out with some new designs. There's some new designs already on the website. So thank you so much for supporting us and this podcast and this community and the unspoken bond. If you're interested in finding some of our Lone Duck gear, check out LoneDuckOutfitters.com. And now let's get into the show. Tonight's guest is a sporting dog specialist veterinarian. He has 20 plus years experience in his field. Let's be honest, he probably hunts harder than most of us. He's the host of the Fueled Podcast, which is presented by Yukonuba, baby. He's from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Dr. Joe Spoo. Joe, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Do everybody a favor and tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a small animal veterinarian that lives in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, uh, I grew up in Northwest Iowa, um, hunting, fishing is kind of basically some of my earliest memories are that in the front of a duck boat with my dad long before I was ever in kindergarten um, and basically have been an addict and obsessed with um, waterfall and upland hunting, uh, primarily waterfall. And, and then over the last 10 or 15 years, I've, I've done quite a bit more upland hunting. Um, knew from a very early age that the only thing I ever wanted to be was a veterinarian and followed that dream to veterinary school at Iowa State. And um, shortly after, uh, towards the end of my vet school career, uh, bought the gun dog doc domain uh, because I knew I wanted to be a hunting dog veterinarian before it was even a specialty in veterinary medicine and just have kind of stayed on that path. Started my career in northern Minnesota and then um, wanted to be where there was more ducks. And so I moved out to South Dakota and have been here for probably the last 17, 18 years. And um, through that time, I've uh, acquired two veterinary practices, uh, married a veterinary specialist, and we currently have a six-doctor practice here in Sioux Falls. Um, I'm board certified in sports medicine and rehabilitation, focusing predominantly on hunting dogs. And then also have a consulting business, um, focusing on companies that, that deal with hunting dogs as well. That's super cool. I recently saw that you did a special with Outdoor Life. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, Outside Magazine, actually. So, or excuse me. Out- um, yeah. So, uh, Outside Magazine, it, it you know was looking for a veterinarian that that dealt with active dogs to do a couple of um, uh, a short video series. And so, you know, obviously, you know, a dog out hiking in the mountains isn't a uh, uh, you know, very different than what we do with a lot of our dogs as well. And so I flew out to Bozeman and recorded, um, I think it was a five episode series on, uh, basically like field emergencies, first aid kits, common injuries and things like that, uh, with active dogs. Very cool. Um, one of the questions we had, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think at the time we're recording this thing, three of the five videos have been released on their website. All right, cool. So check them out and then stay in in the loop. So one of the questions we got, so I'll parlay it into it, is when you're out hunting upland or duck hunting in your blind bag, what's the go-to med kit and what are some things you need to keep a lookout for? So I think, you know, the biggest thing that 
when I give the, the, the field emergency seminar to, to dog owners is that it's my impression that people fall into two categories. The people that don't have a thing in their kit and are going to rely on prayer and hope that there's a vet clinic close to where they're hunting or the people that think that they're, you know, basically EMTs and have a small ambulance in their blind bag or in the back of their truck and get over their skis in a hurry and try to doctor more things than they should. And I'd like to, to get people in that happy middle where there are things that you can address and should address as a dog owner and then recognizing the things that you need to get that dog into a veterinarian uh, because things could get serious in a hurry. And so as far as the basic uh, med kit, and I can share you, I'll share with you um, kind of my handout that you could maybe uh, share with everybody afterwards. It's it's fairly simple. So it fits, it fits all into like a, a Tupperware type of container or a, a Rubbermaid container that you can slide under your seat. The big thing is, if, if we think about it, you know, it's flushing wounds, cleaning out dirty things. Um, you know, if your dog gets seed in the eye, you know, flush those out. So things to flush out things that shouldn't be there and then bandage material to bandage the things that need to be bandaged. And so it, it, it's a pretty simple kit because anything beyond that, you're probably going to need to get the dog someplace. Um, over the years, I've also trained a lot of my clients to use the, the, a staple gun. <clears throat> I think that they work much better than trying to suture a dog in the field. I think that people who are able to recognize that a cut is not super deep and if they clean it and flush it, if we get those edges back together, um, oftentimes that healing process will start right away. And I, I actually had a, a, a wire hair in this morning that had probably tangled with the fence last night. The owners let the dog out um, at about nine o'clock last night and, and they had a stapler in their kit. They texted me pictures and, and, and I said, yeah, I think clean it up and staple it. And they brought the dog in this morning uh, to have me look to see if we need to, to redo it. And, and it looked like it had been closed for three or four days. All, that much healing had already taken place. And so being comfortable with, you know, those injuries that you can address. And, and oftentimes it's just a simple conversation with your veterinarian. Hey, can you talk to me about, you know, what can I address in the field or what should I address and things like that. Um, with with whether it's an upland or, or a duck dog, you know, I think the, the, the most common things that we'll see is debris in the eyes, whether that's seeds or cattail cuts or whatever um, it may be. And then, and then, and then cuts, you know, whether that's a, a, a pheasant dog that goes through a fence and tears up its armpit area, you know, or a duck dog that, you know, somebody didn't see this emerged tree uh, that the dog jumped into. And, and now we've either impaled ourselves or had some type of laceration. So recognizing what you should be able to, to address is important and then having the tools to do that. Very cool. Now to dive back into getting to know you a little bit better, you are, just because I do know you a little bit, you're a Chessy man as well as an English setter man. Tell us about and your dogs and, and a, a dachshund? No, a cocker, a field red cocker. Oh, cocker. Tell us about those dogs. So I started, uh, with my love of, of duck hunting, I started with Chessies. Um, and that, that's, they'll always be where my heart is. Uh, the, the last Chessie I had was the, the very first Chessie that was tested with the now widely available test for degenerative myelopathy. Um, and, and she was, you know, everybody talks about their dog of a lifetime or their heart dog. She was kind of my dog's soulmate. Uh, the dog would hunt from sunup to sundown. You know, I had her in vet school. We hunted quite a bit during vet school. And early in my veterinary career, we, you know, go on week or two week vacations of hunting and, and it would be ducks in the morning 
pheasants midday. And if we hadn't shot our limit in the morning, you know, ducks at sunset again, and that dog just lived to hunt. Um, and it was very, if people haven't seen a dog affected with degenerative myelopathy, it's, it's the dog equivalent of Lou Gehrig's disease. And so her last year of life, I actually hunted her out of a wheelchair and shot a, a wild chart-tail prairie chicken and pheasant over her out of the wheelchair. And when I lost her, I couldn't go back to the breed right away. Uh, my heart was broken, and we didn't really figure it had the we didn't have the genetics figured out at that time. A lot of breeders within the breed were turning a blind eye. Um, and so at, at the same time, I had fallen in love with prairie chickens and sharp grouse out here in South Dakota. And had uh, at that time had two English setters, and so spent a lot of my time chasing setters. When I decided to get back into the retriever world, uh, I didn't I didn't want to go with the standard retriever uh, because I just I, I just didn't I, my heart probably wasn't ready for it. And so I'd looked at Boykins, and the more I looked at Boykins, uh, the more that I saw that that you know small gene pool again with a fair number of health issues. And, and stumbled upon the field-bred English cockers as kind of a do-it-all dog and, and ended up with a field-bred English cocker that, you know, up until the weather gets cold, is is one of the favorite duck dogs that I've ever hunted over, actually. Um, and it's just phenomenal in the water, great, uh, you know, steadiness in, in, you know, taking blinds and things like that. She's just been a blast to hunt over. Um, and so my current crew is that I have a 14 year old setter who still hunt it like a champ this year, um, a three year old setter. And then, and then my gilbred cocker who is, is going to turn 12 this year. No way. Um, we did get a question. I posted a picture of your dog, uh, your setter. And I got the question of where did you get your setters? What style are they? Are they walk behind? Are they a little bit more field trial? Uh, so both of my setters, and they're actually similar lined, um, shared genetics are out of Bird Brothers setters out of out of Minnesota. Um, personally, my uh, personal bias, I, I researched a lot, and um, those guys are just really producing some very good dogs um, that are very consistent. Uh, and so for w- what I do as far as foot hunting, um, they're phenomenal. And just, you know, Boomer, who's three came to me at a time when the business was really growing. Uh, we were, we were having kids and I, he, he did not get a lot of the foundational work that I typically put into a dog and he's phenomenal. And so they just produce really natural, really good dogs. Um, and, and so that's their, you know, the field dog stud book, uh, smaller, you know, I think bell is probably 35 pounds. Boomer's a little bit bigger, but he's slight build. He's probably closer to 50, um, fast running, uh, stay in touch. They're just really natural dogs. Um, Boomer is fast. Uh, he probably, you know, can hold between 23 to 25 miles an hour for the first, you know, loop of the day and is blazing fast, but doesn't range ungodly far. And so it's not, you know, he's not a dog that I wish I was on horseback. He just covers a lot of ground. So, um, I, I will confess that, um, I feel like my dogs don't downshift that well when they're young as far as shifting them to pheasants. You know, so the first question I always get when I tell people I live in South Dakota is, oh, you must pheasant hunt. And and to be honest with you, I don't. Um, I moved out here for the duck hunting. And then with the setters, I predominantly, I predominantly chase the prairie chickens and sharp tails. And so um, Belle, as she got older, has been pretty good with pheasants. And then Boomer, I just, I really haven't given them a lot of opportunities on pheasants because I, I enjoy chasing the, you know, the, the, the grouse in the wide open spaces. So. 
which kind of what do you mean by downshift so you know out west where it's a short grass prairie you know where we're hunting these sharp tails and prairie chickens and cover that you know maybe knee high those dogs can really lay it down because there's not a lot of obstruction and you can see them for miles and miles versus you get into you know thicker habitat that you know say late season pheasants are in it might be switchgrass or cattails that's you know chest or head high and that dog needs to work a little bit closer so that you can stay in contact and you know where they're at um, and then and then hunt smarter and so you know I had a, a the setter that preceded both of these dogs she had one speed that was wide open and she was constantly injured because every time I pheasant hunter she'd go wide open into some obstruction and so um, it, it, that ability to understand that hey there's you know obstacles and stuff in my way I'd probably better pick through it a little bit different than when I'm out west and can just barrel through it so uh, and, and maybe you know that's part of my problem is that Maggie had that one speed and and um, I always say she taught me a lot about sports medicine because if there was an injury that dog had it um, <laughs> particularly like field emergencies and and I just was really reluctant to hunt her in pheasant cover because she just didn't slow down and become more methodical yeah What's the wildest injury your dog has had? So that dog, Maggie, um, two, I'd say with her is she had a, a opening pheasant season one early, early when I moved out to South Dakota. So she was still a pretty young dog, ran down into a wooded draw and in just started sneezing like crazy. I caught up to her and like there was freaking blood everywhere. I mean, she was just hosing blood out her nose. So I picked her up, took her back to the truck. Um, I took her into the clinic, and I couldn't see anything up there. There was a lot of blood. Um, it was the days before I had a CT unit in-house. And so uh, I had consulted to, to, with a friend down at Iowa State and said, hey, should I bring her down for a CT? And they said, no, do, do a month worth of antibiotics and see where we're at. So I put her on antibiotics. And towards the end of that month, I was out west hunting uh, grouse. And three-day hunt, she worked like a million bucks, pointed birds. The last day, it was super windy. She had nailed a couple of groups. It was the last place we were going to hunt, and I went to get her out of the crate. And she just started violently sneezing, almost like it looked like she was maybe having a seizure. And I pulled her out, and as I pulled her out, out shoots about a four-inch stick out her nose onto the tailgate. And so for a month, she hunted with a four-inch stick up her nose. And it really caused me to kind of step back and be like, holy crap. You know, if that would have been you or I, we'd have been screaming to everybody on, you know, that would listen to us how painful we were and that we had a stick up our nose. And that dog was out pointing birds and running like a, you know, a million bucks. Fast forward probably two years and she um, suffered from a migrating foreign body. And we actually ended up in her chest full of pus. Um, and, and had a Canada rye seed that had probably migrated from her lungs out. When we found it, it was it was on the outside, but we ended up in her chest as well. Um, and and I, I thought for sure I was going to lose her. We had punctured an abscess right as, as the chest opened up, and it was just a horrible deal. But she's the only dog that whose chest I've been in in private practice that it wasn't through like a traumatic injury or things like that. So in 20 years of practice, um, my dog's the only dog that we've ended up in that. And now I no longer do that surgery. It's one that I have the boarded surgeon do because it's such a wild surgery when these dogs have these seeds that migrate through their body. Jeez. Is that more common out there? I've, I've literally never heard of that. Yeah, it is. And especially these last several years because we've been so wet. So there's tons of foxtail. 
Um, and then the other thing too is that in these early plantings, so when you know uh, the state or the feds buy land or pheasants forever helps you know repopulate or restore land, a lot of those seeds that actually have those migrating heads are in those early mixes because they grow quickly. So like Canada rye is really really popular and it's horrible for the dogs and. You know, I think people forget that, you know, these organizations are here to make habitat for the birds and the wildlife. They're not gun dog organizations. And so they choose these mixes based on wildlife, not the potential, you know, danger that 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 can happen to the dogs. But it's the last two years have probably been the worst I've ever had in practice. And that's um, if you check out, you know, like on my Instagram, I think this, this year I've shared a bunch of the CT images of those those seeds ending up in weird places in dogs. Is there anything a, a person can do to prevent it, or is it just if you're going to be out there hunting, you you're probably going to run into this? So uh, to be honest, I being conscious of what plants they are, and I personally avoid a lot of those. So there's a, a website called MeanSeeds.org. I believe it's .org. Um, it was started by the Springer folks because the, the the code it breeds like that. So like your Springers, your Cockers, your Setters seem to be really prone. The short-coated breed that we see the most would be short hairs, and I have no idea why short hairs seem have to have a predilection to this issue, but they do. Um, but the, the Springer folks, because they, they've you know had a lot of high-powered dogs that they've lost to this condition, um, had started kind of like a lobbying group to get these mixes changed. And so, if you go to that MeanSeeds.org, you can it, it has a lot of examples of the plants. Um, after Maggie's deal, like I know exactly when it happened. I was back in Iowa hunting uh, on a Thanksgiving. I went back home for Thanksgiving. The the evening before Thanksgiving, I was out in a newly planted public area. It was covered in Canada rye, and she was just covered in seeds when I got back to the truck. And about two months later is when her abscess blew up. And so I just, I personally avoid those areas with my dogs because it's just not worth it to me. Um, back home where I'm from in Northwest Iowa, they've, they've added a ton of land. And uh, I just, I don't go back home and hunt anymore because it's so much of it has those types of plants in it. So basically, you know, the point of my blithering would be educating yourself as to what plants can do it. Um, out here, foxtails is another one. So we've had this, this a couple of really wet years and it grows around moist areas. And so avoiding those moist areas that have those types of plants is important in my book. Very good. Yeah, again, we don't run into it. The things that I've ran into would be like sawgrass and cattail or, or like a high grass area, and their eyeballs yep. get scratched from that. Yeah, wow. that's, that's, that's that's the most common I have as well. Yep. I mean, it's at least three or four dogs a year in training or hunting have a swollen eyeball. And I got to take them to that. And that's what it is every time. Yeah. And it's, it's so just because I'm a nerd, I've actually like, you know, after running a dog in a field that doesn't have any issues, but as soon as you get back to the truck, if you apply that stain to the eye and look, they all, it's just like Freddy Krueger took a swipe at their eyeballs. They have all kinds of micro scratches. I think 99% of them heal but it's that, you know, one that either got infected or was a little bit deeper or caused a little bit of flap that you end up with an issue. And, and, and I think it's, you know, it's people probably miss it more um, where the dog ends up healing itself, but it, it, it is those eyes take a beating in a dog running through cover. Yeah, no doubt about it. Have you ever ran into any porcupines? 
one of the reasons I moved from northern Minnesota to South Dakota was porcupines. Uh, we took call at the practice I was at up there, and it never failed that, you know, someone would get home from the bar at 2, let their dog out, and it would go into the swamp and get into it with a porcupine. And then, you know, I'd get the call at 2, 2.30 to have to drive into the clinic to pull quills all night. And so, uh, yeah, I, w- I wasn't sad to leave the Northwoods to leave porcupines behind. Is that something people could do on the tailgate, or is that like, nah, just bring them in? So it really depends on the dog and the degree. Um, you know, I, I've seen various, you know, recommendations to, you know, put a, a dowel in their mouth and to, you know, put a muzzle on and things like that. I think if a dog has a few quills, so I think dogs fall into two categories. That dog sticks its nose in there or runs into the porcupine and then gets the, you know, the hell out of Dodge. And then it's the dogs that get poked and get super pissed off and then attack the porcupine. Um, and so that dog that, that attacks and is just covered in quills, to, to do the dog right, you really should probably take them in and have them sedated and get them all pulled because they'll oftentimes have them in their mouth, in the roof of their mouth, down their throat. And there is not a dog in the world that's going to let you pull all those out. So that, that real severe case, the dog probably needs to be taken in and sedated. The dog that just gets a handful of quills, I think, again, it's based on its temperament. If it's a cooperative dog, I think you can pull it. Um, I will do veterinarians in porcupine country a favor and say that no wives tale in the world works. So, and we've seen all of them, you know, the people that want to cut the ends off because they heard it relieves pressure, soaking them in alcohol, putting some sort of concoction on them. None of that works. You just have to grab low and pull. So you want to be as close to the skin as possible and pull. Um, the other thing too, like with the small little quills, you want to make sure like the teeth, like if you're using a leather man or a, a, a plier, you want to make sure that the teeth are perpendicular to the quill. Some of those, if they're just small enough, can kind of get into the track as opposed to into the teeth if you if you run it parallel. So just kind of being conscious of how you're pulling and things like that. But grab close to the skin and pull. That's interesting. I've knock on wood. I know next year, now that I'm saying this, I'm going to get one, but I've never <laughs> exactly. ran into one. Out hunting, yeah, there I know it's going to happen. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, as far it sounds like you've traveled a lot and hunted a lot. Is there special places in your heart that you try and go back to all the time, or memories or places that you love to go to? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say where I'm at. Um, you know, being in South Dakota, a lot of there's a lot of memories that that I've created out here um, with my dad chasing the prairie birds, uh, and then of course the, the duck hunting spots growing up back home. Um, you know, where I learned to duck hunt will, you know, any any time I I think duck hunting, that's what it is 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 in that beat up old John boat when you know the northern mallards are are cupping into the decoys. Um, and so I, I, I guess I'd say, you know, I, I live pretty close to those places that are close to my heart and that's why I came back here after moving North. Um, because it's, you know, I, I can't wait to have those same experiences with my kids. Um, my daughter is four, almost five. Um, and we're probably going to go out West this weekend and run dogs. You know, she, she loves going out and, and she's starting to get it a little bit more and, and loves the dogs, you know, can identify, snow geese, Canada geese, and speckle bellies based on their calls and, and, you know, flight formations. And I just can't wait to expose her to more and more of those things I love. And so it's, 
it's a big reason of why I live where I do is that I can, you know, it's not having to take a trip to be where I create those memories. It's, it's, it's really close to where I'm at right now. <clears throat> Joe, does That's your wife hunt cool. also? No, she doesn't. Um, not, not at all. Uh, is not against it, but, um, you know, isn't her, her dad hunts a little bit, but she really kind of grew up not exposed to it. She's, um, I would say a big city girl, uh, grew up in the Austin, Texas area. And then she moved down to the Port Lauderdale area and that's where we met. And then I dragged her to South Dakota, um, from South Florida. So it was, it was quite a culture shock for her, uh, to come to this part of the country. What a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you said she works with you at the clinic, right? Yeah. Yes. Do, do you handle more of the hunting dog and working dogs and does she do something different or is the clinic, uh, kind of all encompassing hunting dog, sporting dog? So it, it's, I, I handle a majority of those. Um, it's as the clinic grew and, and, you know, I, I shifted some of my responsibilities to some of the management stuff. Some of the other veterinarians, you know, see quite a bit of sporting dogs as well now, uh, as well. Um, my wife is, is the only other, um, veterinary specialist in the state and her interest is more along the lines of, of, um, she does a lot with ultrasound, um, cardiology. She has a lot of oncology. So your, your more advanced medical cases is kind of her wheelhouse. Um, and so that her specialty is that I would say too, you know, our clients are quite different. Um, we just have different personalities. It's, 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 it's why we work so well together. We, we don't step on each other. We actually complement each other quite well because we're so different with how we practice, the clients that we attract, and things like that. So I'd say I'm, you know, the sporting hunting dog guy, and then she's more of the complicated case. You know, if if, if shit hits the fan, she's who you want um, dealing with it. That's pretty That's cool. cool. Uh, in your experience in the field, this is a question I get all the time on Instagram. Do claws. What is your opinion on keeping them, not keeping them for a sporting dog? That's a good one. So, yeah, and, and, and it's funny that you say that because I, I actually am in the process of writing an article about that because it's kind of one of my pet peeve issues. And, and the reason I say that is is because we don't know the answer. And so – what what irritates me is that someone that says we absolutely know and this is the answer, um, we don't. And, and, you know, if if you've been on the Internet long enough, there's an article that circulates from, you know, a sporting dog specialist who with diagrams and, and say that they're, you know, it, it, they're connected. And, and all those things are true, but nobody's actually looked to see does removing them cause the problems that she theorizes in that article? And, um, and, 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 and I know her quite well. I've suggested we could do that research because we could take our U.S. dogs and compare them to our European counterparts. Um, I have a number of clients that are in the German dog world that travel to Germany every year. And so we could, we could get same age breakdowns and everything. And so basically my recommendation to clients is you know if you've had dewclaw injuries and you want to remove them and you're doing it for a reason i support that and if it's a client that wants to keep them and they want to keep them for a reason i support that you know for i'm old enough that for a long time you know dewclaws on a lab say 
was the sign of a backyard bred, cheaply bred, you know, crappy dog, right? And and, and right. now it's shifted that we have, you know, these British dogs or, you know, these European, you know, continental breeds that have them. And, and it's it's graded a little bit, right? Because people are so polarized with it has to be one way or the other. And as long as that person feels and has some rationale for their choice, um, I think until we do that research, I don't think anybody's wrong and nobody's right. We just don't know. And so, you know, it's if, if someone says, oh, I just didn't remove the due cause, you know, because I was cheap, then that's going to make you question their entire breeding program. Not that they left the due clause on, but just that they're not, you know, using any sort of information to make those decisions. Um, I, I would say in my day-to-day interactions with veterinarians and veterinary specialists, I, you know, as many people as say that we should leave them, will say that we should take them, that they see a lot of injuries, you know, particularly people down south that have dogs running in timber and things like that. They'll they'll have traumatic dew claw injuries. Um, I, you know, the, the other claim is that the dogs that have them removed have a lot of, of carpal or wrist arthritis. And honestly, since this has become a topic and not that I've, I've tracked it or done any research, but, but I think it's equal. I, I have as many dogs that have dew claws on that are active, hard charging dogs that have wrist issues as dogs that don't. And, and my, my cocker is an example. She was bred by um, an individual from England and has her dew claws on and she has, she's injured her carpuses multiple times. And so, you know, were those dew claws protective? No. Um, you know, does she use them? I do think there's situations she does. So it's a long blithering, I guess, response to your question. But I, I think at the end of the day, we don't know. And there's not a black and white. And, and I have clients that leave and clients that don't. And as long as we have that discussion and there's rationale behind their choice, I support that because I don't think we have the answer. And so I think, you know, as, as owners and what, you know, people in the sporting dog world, what we need to be pressing is for that research to get done. You know, let's, let's look at a, a group of 10 year old labs with and without and look at, you know, their carpal arthritis. Let's look at, you know, pointers um, and see, you know, I will say that a lot of sled dog people take them off and those dogs pound and do a lot of miles and they see very few problems with those dogs so the the dogs are out there the research isn't first of all i don't think you were blabbering i think that was thorough and exactly what i was looking for my biggest gripe with stuff like this is i can google it and stevie over here dvm he's telling you not to and then Danny DVM over here is telling you to do it. And so if you Google the same thing in the first three, you know, on the first page, you're going to have 50% one way or the other. And there's, right. There's no real research on it. You're just getting people's opinions, not research. And that's, I I think that that's part of the problem that's existing right now is that some of the information out there by certain veterinarians is presented as though it's research and it's not, it's just a very well-written opinion and 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 that's you know that's the difference is you know you know what they say about opinions <laughs> yeah they all smile <laughs> yeah absolutely now another one that you get every which way spay and neuter should it's you so, so what age all that jazz sure and so I, 
the short answer I will give is the same as the do clause. It's not a black and white and there isn't. And so, you know, how I practice, I don't believe in cookbooks. I think every dog and every owner and every situation is an individual. And so what irritates me more is, is, is just like you said, you Google it and this guy says, this is absolutely what you need to do. And another guy says, this is absolutely what you need to do. And they're really divergent, right? The problem is, is there aren't absolutes when you're dealing with living creatures. And so to say that everyone should do it is wrong. And so for years in the veterinary profession, when we said, let's spay and neuter everything at four to six months, we were wrong to say that. It was, you know, we used two things to, to justify that. One was pet overpopulation issues. And the other was mammary can- uh, one study on mammary tumors in female dogs. And nobody looked at the ramifications. As we've gotten further along, now people are looking at the ramifications. And there is a ton of research to show that early spay-neuter has, has some negatives to it, right? So with, with male dogs, excuse me, if we, if we neuter them before skeletal maturity, that dog gets lankier. We can have more orthopedic issues. Um, you know, it, 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 the testosterone helps close the growth plates. With female dogs, we can have some structural changes. We've seen that there's an increased risk of cancer. Uh, and, and there's issues that occur with early spay and neuter. So then the question becomes, you know, that, that pet dog owner that, does, that doesn't want to deal with an intact animal, at what point should they? And I think we have a pretty good idea with male dogs that, you know, if you say I'm going to neuter it, if we can wait until that, you know, with a hunting dog, probably 18 to 24 months until they reach skeletal maturity, that's probably your best bet. With female dogs, it, it's, I don't think the research is as concrete. It, you know, I typically will say, let's let them go through a heat cycle. Um, there's arguments and you get pushed back with that because again, it's my opinion. There isn't concrete. Um, the other side of it is the behavior in the housing environment that that dog's in. And so, you know, if you get a, 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 a an owly male dog that you got a, a young couple that has you know kids that are six months three and six and you got this little seven-month-old dog that's aggressive with them hypersexual destructive and doing all those things we might not be able to in the best interest of that dog being a long-term member of that household we not we might not be able to wait for to 18 to 24 months to curb some of those tendencies and so there's the whole home environment and the behavioral component that needs to be discussed as well. And so with those dogs, we talk about, you know what, you know, yep, your dog's super aggressive or super sexual. You don't want that intact dog in your house, so we're going to neuter them. But these are the risks that you're going to incur for doing that. And in those, it's a, you know, pros and cons of that situation for that owner and that dog. And the same with female dogs. Having a female dog in your house is a pain in the butt. Um, I've always had intact females and, and they've all been intact until they were later in life. So I always thought I would end up being in doing some breeding because I, I do a fair amount of it in the practice. And so I'd end up with these older dogs that had never been bred. And, you know, a lot of breeders will say, oh, it's nine days coming in. It's nine days during nine days going out. And so people have this perception that that dog's only going to bleed for nine days. When in fact, when they're living in your house, it's about 27 days, twice a year, and that's a pain. And so there's some people that just can't, they don't have the home environment where they can do that. And so that person, we may spay that dog sooner than would be ideal. Um, You know, if if the dog's having urinary issues or has, you know, a a recessed vulva, 
I'll really encourage those owners to let that dog go through a heat cycle. And so I think what the research shows is that the veterinary profession was wrong for a number of years to recommend early spay neuters. I think what we now have is a fair amount of information with different statistics related to males and females in certain breeds, but we don't have that black and white answer that everybody wants because at the end of the day, these dogs are owned by individuals in individual households. And so, you know, from an ideal health standpoint, you know, keeping dogs intact isn't a bad thing. And so, you know, as far as standard veterinary practices, you know, in, at least in our area, we probably have the most intact animals. Um, it's still a stigma within the profession that, you know, a lot of employees in, in vets and technicians say, why isn't your dog spayed neutered? Why, you know, let's do it at four to six months. But that, that information is shifting. The problem I think we're at right now is is like with females. I can't say what's the ideal time because there are studies that show that, you know, spaying any time shortens longevity. And so, you know, what's that answer, especially for a bitch that never's bred? that then has a tendency to develop pyometra. And so I think, you know, the big thing is having that discussion as an individual and, and, and finding a veterinarian that's going to treat you and your dog as an individual with your situation, as opposed to making blanket recommendations, because there isn't, there's not a black and white answer. And just like with the due clause, you know, any veterinarian that says everything should be spayed at four to six months is wrong. And every vet veterinarian that says, all oh, they need to be kept intact forever is wrong because it's not taking into account that individual animal and that individual owner. Right. So I'm going to give my two cents. Um, with all the dogs that come in and out of training, I see dogs that are generally six months old to a year and a half old that come in, right? They're, they're right. young dogs. The year-old male that got neutered at six months and the year-old male that didn't, will look completely different. Their back end, their hindquarters aren't rounded and muscular and they'll run just as much as the other dogs. They'll, their chest shoulders don't develop. They, they just m muscularly look less. And, and I can't, and I don't know the ins and outs of the science, but like looking at it, you could be like, without seeing whether there's something attached to them or not, I could be like, that dog's been neutered, that dog hasn't. And and you just, and all of a sudden, boom, yep, it's been neutered. And over and over and over and over again, I see that. And so when people ask me, I give the same advice you gave, depending on the home, depending on your needs and all that, but I would rather watch that dog physically develop. Imagine a 13-year-old boy or girl having their sexual organs taken out. They're not going to develop and mature in a normal rate and, and grow to their normal or what would have been their normal. And that like, that's my, that's Bob science. That's bro science. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you were on the same, like that I wasn't completely wrong and that you're on the no, same and, page with that. Yeah. And it's common. You know, some of it's common sense, right? Like it's, 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 it, it is like you look at those dogs and you can structurally see a difference. And, you know, and that's, you know, with what I do, you know, on the sports medicine and rehab side, seeing dogs with injuries, I mean, the technicians that work close with me, you know, they can walk into a room with an eight or 10 year old dog and say, your dog was neutered at six months or, you know, I mean, they, they, you know, even that long later in life, it's pretty easy to tell when that dog was spayed or neutered, oftentimes with these athletic dogs, based on that physical structure. And, and, you know, there, there's no doubt there has to be consequences for that, right? Like you take that 
that dog you're seeing in training that, that, you know, was early neutered and his skeletal and muscular structure is different. And you go to ask him to do the same tasks as that dog that is intact and, you know, has better skeletal structure is more muscular. You know, it, it doesn't take a genius to figure out which dog's going to have the tendency to blow its cruciates out. Right. That dog that, right. you know, is skeletally abnormal with no musculature. And, and so, and, and that's what the research has shown is those dogs are more prone to orthopedic injuries for those, those very reasons that you're seeing in training. Sure. Now, one thing I want to chat about on this as well is there's so many misconceptions on whether people should or shouldn't. So like you were saying before, which I was a little surprised at, but also excited that you said it is like, if you've got a dog that's humping, if you've got a dog that's marking its territory in the house or is possessive or you know the old adage like if i neuter my my dog or spay my dog it won't have the same drive are any of those like old wives tales or are any of those like if yeah if you do this you're probably going to have be helped out so I, I i would say it depends and so i think the hypersexual stuff if it hasn't become a learned behavior oftentimes neutering will help. But I say that and my, you know, twelve year old cocker who was spayed at I forget how old she was, maybe seven or eight. She's the humpiest dog that I've ever been around. And I mean like a freaking I like old her already. Yeah. I and, love and, her. And, and so, you know, what you know, what's the situation there? Um and, and so there's no guarantees with it. I think that the behaviors that we'll see with male dogs is you know, inner dog aggression, not necessarily dominance aggression, but inner dog aggression, those hypersexual type of behaviors. I think marking, because that is kind of a male-driven behavior. Uh, one of the things that, that we say about removing testosterone, so, you know, testosterone basically takes the filters away and those dogs are going to act on instinct more quickly. And so that dog that snaps quicker gets, you know, ticked off quicker, um, The test, taking the testosterone away will maybe slow that down. One of the things that as, you know, in, 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 if you look at any of the veterinary behavior books that were from the era when I went to school, every, every behavior problem, the first recommendation is spay-neuter. Kind of like just spay-neuter in general. Now that we've kind of looked at some of those things, we find that some of those behaviors aren't necessarily solved with removing the sex organs. And so it goes back to the basics of training right and and you know you have that dog with those tendencies you probably the air probably isn't with the sex organs it's probably with how a lot of that foundational training which most owners skip and how it wasn't laid and how rules weren't set and there was no structure and so it's not an immediate fix and 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 i have that discussion with owners you know there's certain problems i think it helps but it's it's not an immediate um, I think the, the other biggest wives tale, old wives tale is that's going to take away the drive. And so I think if you have that dog that wants to hunt, has the drive, taking away the sex organs, conversely, is not going to take that away. It's, it's that dog's still going to want to. And so I think the big thing is, is making sure you're not thinking that some of this stuff is going to be a quick fix. You're still going to have to put the effort into untrain and to deal with some of those behaviors. Um, and I think that's where, you know, probably one of my biggest frustrations with owners is, is, is that, that they think everything's going to be a quick result, that either one, the dog's going to, you know, lose its desire or we're going to fix this behavior problem when neither is true. If you have a dog that was bred and enjoys and has drive to hunt, it's still going to do that. And conversely, if you have a dog that, you know, is kind of an asshole 
if you take his testicles away, chances are he's probably still going to kind of be an asshole if you don't do anything about the training situation. Well, I would say that's that's the perfect example of that would be would be Kevin. Damn it! See, I was just gonna cut him off and say, "Well, I, I are we talking about Bob, or are we did we like where did we jump to here?" Well, that's all right. Um, <laughs> you just do it. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. Whatever. I'll, I'll get you next time. Uh, Joe, I had a question. I was chatting with some some friends over at Gunner, and they were you know Gunner uh, Addison's dog. It's kind of getting up there in age, and we were talking a little bit about different supplements that you can give your dog at older ages to help them with their joints and with their skin and all those types of things. Is there anything that you would recommend or maybe, um, it, like I guess somebody said old wives tales earlier, like is it fish oil, snake oil? Like what, what would you do or what do you do? You have old dogs. I do. And so um, I, I think the thing that we miss the most in old dogs is actually addressing what the problem is. And so, you know, like my bell dog, for instance, turned 14 in January. She hunted this year. Uh, she ended up with a splenic tumor in October. We took her spleen out at, you know, almost 14. She so was 13, almost 14. Holy cow. And, and I had her back out. In the, yeah, and I had her back on the field hunting 18 days post, and she looked like a seven-year-old dog. And she's had orthopedic issues in her life. So she has, she had some horrible back issues from eight to 10 years of age. And so I think that the, a couple of things that happen happens with old dogs is that, you know, especially with active old dogs, they're going to get beat up a bit. And so, you know, I used to do a couple of marathons a year, run triathlons, um, and kind of beat my body up. And now in my, you know, early forties, you know, I get to take a leak in the middle of the night and my feet hurt like heck because of of all the running and the trauma that i've caused to myself same thing happens with these dogs right we ask them to go run miles and miles and miles and they're going to have some issues the problem is is that you know you see these old dogs that seem like they're achy in the back end they have trouble standing up they start you know losing some of that muscle mass and the first thing everybody thinks is oh they're arthritic and they must have hip problems or knee problems and so let's give them an anti-inflammatory and it's kind of become an area of, of, I don't know, maybe not special interest, but kind of one of the more gratifying areas of my practice is dealing with these older dogs with mobility issues. I love more than anything to keep these dogs in the field until the day we put them down because that's what they live for. And I think what happens is we get these dogs that get achy in, in old age, and it's not necessarily that they have arthritis, but just like as we age, things change. And so, the muscles don't function like they should. And, and Bella is an example. You know, if, if we do the whole dog years thing, I mean, she's like a million years old in dog years. Yeah. And so we look at, you know, 80, 90, 100-year-old people, and they lose that fine motor control, right? It's why we have some of these electric chairs to be able to lift people from a seating position to set them back down. The dogs lose the same thing. And so you'll see these dogs, as they get older, they just flop down as opposed to sit down and then lay down. In same way, when they go to stand up, they pull themselves up with the front end, and you get these labs with these huge front ends and the real narrow back end. And so I think what happens is a couple of things. One is we misdiagnose those dogs. And so I see a lot of dogs that are on chronic anti-inflammatories that don't have a lick of arthritis, but they have a hell of a lot of muscle pain. And so getting with a veterinarian that can identify that and address the muscle pain put together a program of stretching, of building that dog back up and physically working with your dog to, to undo some of that aging-related damage, 
getting them to sit properly, to be able to fire those muscles correctly um, so that neurologically they're more appropriate. And so identifying the problem is huge. And then I think the other thing that happens is a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the dog starts showing signs of aging. Or the other thing that is kind of my pet peeve is it hits a certain number, like 9 or 10, and we say, oh, you know, Sally's getting old, and so we better not hunt her anymore. So we don't take her, we don't train her, and we feel bad about that. So we love her with food, and then she gets fat, and her muscle mass decreases, and so then she gets her mobility worsens, and we say, see, look how bad Sally is now. Right. It's a good thing we didn't take her, versus if we said, you know what, Sally's a little bit sore, but she freaking loves to hunt, so I'm going to do everything I can to keep her hunting and, and work her through those aches and pains, keep that muscle mass up, and get her out in the field. A lot of these old dogs, they, they may go through a period, and both my setters did, like from 8 to 10, where they struggled a little bit at the end of the hunt. So like that evening, they'd be sore and painful. But then later in life, in their you know early you know double digits, they both were super athletic. Like Belle looks you know most days like a seven-year-old dog, and she's 14. And so I, I think one is that. So no drugs, not selling you anything. It's just addressing the problem correctly. That you know maybe it's not arthritis. A dog that you know, suddenly at 10 starts having problems with the back end, did not develop hip dysplasia. That well-bred dog that you bought out of excellent parents did not suddenly have its hips go to pot late in life. It's probably muscles. And then as far as supplements go, I think the big thing is, is there is a lot of snake oil out there. And so knowing what and why you're buying it is important. Um, there's one company that I really, really like, and that's Nutramax Laboratories. They make a lot of the veterinary specific products. They're not all through veterinarians. So their original glucosamine chondroitin product was Cosequin, which I think you can pretty much get anywhere now. Um, the veterinary specific products just have more bells and whistles and kind of as they add more bells and whistles, they then kick those products, the, the, the lesser products out to the over the counter. Um, they're very, very uh good about their disclosures about ingredients, ingredient sourcing, and they do conduct research. Um, their head of clinical research right now is, is one of, you know, the, the fathers of sports medicine and, and probably one of the best mentors I've had in my career, Rob Gillette. Um, and so their products are really good. And so their, their Dasaquin line um, are the products that we sell in, in the clinic. The big thing I would say about the glucosamine and chondroitin products is that for a long time, we thought that we gave those products and that they would actually go into the joint and make repairs. I think it's pretty universally accepted that that's probably not what's occurring, but what they do do is help with um, inflammation and total body inflammation in these dogs that have these aging-related problems or dogs that have had cruciate surgeries or have hip dysplasia, have inflammatory conditions, and they'll help with that. And then same with the omega-3s. Um, I really like their products, again, because I know what I'm paying for is in that bottle. And anytime you're dealing in the supplement industry, it's not regulated. It's right. not, there's no oversight. And so you're not oftentimes getting what you think you're paying for, where those Nutramax products, you really, really are. That's interesting. What, uh, I don't you've probably gotten this question a bunch, but what do you think about CBD for dogs? I was actually surprised it took this long to get to that point. Well, so you know, hey, I, it just popped into my head. <laughs> it, it, it's crazy to me. So it, it's 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 probably of all of the products in my 20-year career, 
I probably get asked more about CBD oil than I have any other thing in probably any other five things combined. Really? Um, I think, yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean, mean, if you want to get rich, you should just start selling it. <laughs> it's so in South Dakota, it's still considered a schedule one, like, you know, the same as heroin and, uh, Seriously? uh you know, all the hard drugs. Wow. Yes. It's available. Like you can go and buy it and it's currently turning a blind eye, but our regulations are such that, that it's, it's considered a schedule one drug. Interesting. Um, so what I'd say about CBD oil is I think that the research is promising and, um, I have a, a, another very good mentor of mine, uh, Joe Washlog up at Cornell, is 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 leading a lot of very good clinical research on it. I think we're going to see that there's a number of conditions that it does indeed help. I think the the problems that I have with CBD oil right now is that it's the wild west, and I think when they look at these products, there's oftentimes very little CBD oil in them. It's certainly not what's on most of the labels. Um, you're not dealing with purified products because again, there's no regulation. So, you know, anybody can go start a CBD oil company. It doesn't mean that that's what they're selling though, because nobody's holding them accountable. And so I think it's certainly a buyer beware with that. The other problem that I have is that I think a lot of people just use it because they hear a lot about it. And most people are using it not at the doses that have been shown to be effective, and part of that reason is is because to use it correctly is actually expensive. And so if you're if you get a, good, a good point. product from a reputable company and use it at the doses that have been shown to be effective in the studies, it's freaking expensive. So it's not a cheap, quick fix. And so that you know that going and buying that CBD oil treat that maybe has two milligrams and giving that to your hundred pound dog once or twice a day is you know <laughs> not gonna win, do I guess is what we. You know, and so I, I think that that's the problem right now is that people, there's a lot of placebo effect because of how people are using it. I do think it has a lot of promise when people start using it correctly and we have, a, you know, have those products that are studied and, you know, verified as far as concentrations and things like that. The problem is, is that it, it, you know, currently to use it correctly is cost prohibitive, especially when you start talking, you know, our, our big dogs. Sure. Now. Um, is there anything that you give your dogs? So currently, the, the, so Bell right now, my old dog, is on a drug called Galaprant, which is a new class of, of anti-inflammatories. And so for, for years, and I still use a lot of Rimadyl um, as my kind of go-to anti-inflammatory, um, Galaprant is a new class of drugs. And so the problem with the anti-inflammatories and just like you or I take an ibuprofen or Celebrex or any of those is that they hit the good and the bad things. And so you have side effects and you can have intestinal side effects. You can have kidney liver side effects. Galaprant's a drug that actually is kind of receptor specific for a pain receptor. And so some of these dogs that have that general achiness, um, I feel like it works really well. I use it daily. And so with her, when she was having her issues a couple of years ago, I wouldn't give her any daily medications because most of the time she was fine. And then we'd hunt or train and she'd be miserable. And so I would give her a combination of medications, you know, Rimadyl, Tramadol, Gabapentin, uh, Robaxin. And to, to basically she'd fall off a cliff and I try to put her back up on that cliff. Sure. With the Galaprant using it daily, I feel like it pushes her back from that cliff. So even on days where she works really hard, it's the only medication that I really have to give. And so doing that daily without the worry for those side effects 
Um, I'll sound like I'll sound like a sales rep for the company, but I, I feel like it was the fountain of youth for her, and and I believe that in a lot of the other dogs. It's not for every dog. So a dog comes in, you know, blew its cruciate out. That's not the drug I'm going to use in that dog to manage its pain. But just these general like achy dogs, and and I'm not a everyday drug kind of guy. I hate that. Um, you know, I, again, kind of back to your original question about these old dogs. I don't like to do like drugs daily. If we can fix a problem, you know, if it's not inflammation, but it's muscle pain, let's address the muscle. But I do think like some of these older dogs that are just achy from life, this, the Galaprant has been a really, really good drug to use. Hmm. That's interesting. And then with the supplements for, for me, um, Belle, again, she's different than my other dog. She's the pickiest dog in the world. And so, uh, like, she doesn't like the fish oils. And so if I put, like, the omega-3 products on her food, she'll refuse to eat it. She does not like any of the flavored chews. So if, if I even – so that I keep the medications and all the, the stuff above where I feed them. If I even look at those shelves, she runs and won't eat for three days. And so <laughs> and, and so I'd like to have her on some of the glucosamine chondroit and some of the omega-3s, but it just it isn't going to happen with that dog. Yeah. Well, that's, that's interesting and, and nice that you have kind of, you know, a, a few different cards to play. So I, I'm going to jump in for a sec. There's a couple questions that I'd like to ask for my personal selfish reasons. Old Buck. There you go. My... My old dog, uh, Joe, has hip dysplasia. Um, he's probably 10 years old, and it's one of those things where he is sore at the end of the day, at the end of the hunt, yep. and then probably for the next day. From you know, again, bro science, when, whenever I got a little extra rumadil, I'll, I'll save it, and I'll give him a little bit of it at the end of the hunt. And it, and it, truly does help him and then you don't see him struggle to get up or slip a little bit um but like you were talking about a a dog with cruciate that x wouldn't be good for them um for a dog like that who we know has uh, definitely has arthritis in the hip joints i mean it's it's been x-rayed and there's arthritis all in there and we know there's an actual issue but he still likes to go on hikes. He still likes to be active and he still likes to hunt a, how I handle it is I just monitor the hunt. I don't take him in nasty stick swamps and mucky and I don't pheasant hunt him for four hours, eight hours anymore. It's like an hour. Um, but what, what would you suggest as a supplement? And then what would you suggest? I, I monitor that with. Sure. And so he would be, he'd be a good candidate to be, on, you know, like a dosicin, quosicin type of product with the glucosamine chondroid and, and, and the other added benefits. He'd probably be a dog that would benefit from the omega-3 type of products. Um, the Nutramax product is Wolactin, uh, again, for the anti-inflammatory effect. And then I, I'd be curious. So, you know, I think there's two ways to, to, to manage it with him, and it would be trial and error. So the, the way you're doing it would be my tendency would be the kind of the spot treatment on the days that he's active and painful using the Rimadil. Um, but he'd be a dog. I'd be curious if the Galaprant daily instead of the Rimadil, just when he's painful, if that would keep him from ever getting painful. 
and it may not like if it's if it's if, if his hips are bad enough you know it, it may not you, you may need to do the rimadil route that you're doing um i think too like spot treating with an anti-inflammatory if that works you, the, the, uh, the odds of you having you know one of these reactions is pretty low um, I would contend that Rimadil out of that group, and so the the, the, the true anti-inflammatory, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, I still feel it's the safest drug of that group um, because we've we've had the most doses used in this country, um, and and I think that dogs that do react, and I probably had you know maybe four or five in my entire career, all of them recover pretty quickly, which I can't say for some of the other anti-inflammatories. So I don't think what you're doing is wrong. The one thing I'd say is it'd be interesting, like for me to get my hands on them or or, or another vet trained in rehabilitation, because I'm going to wager he probably has a lot of muscle imbalance. And so, you know, if you think about these dogs that have rear leg issues, they oftentimes walk with those hips flexed a little bit. And, and you know, you guys being in more Southern climates probably don't know what it's like to walk any distance on ice. But if you walk on ice for a long distance, then you're fine that day, but the next day your quads are on fire. These dogs with rear leg problems often are that way. They, they keep those hips flexed to avoid some of that pain, whether it's a cruciate pain or, in your case, the hip dysplasia. And oftentimes those hip flexors are just freaking on fire. And so I can lightly touch a dog in those hip flexors and they'll come unglued. And so I would wonder what a maintenance physical therapy program for your dog might do to even avoid using some of the drugs where you maybe are using the anti-inflammatory left. We're going to build his muscle mass back up even further to help with stability of those joints. I feel like a lot of these dogs with arthritic conditions that the body kind of hits an equilibrium with the actual inflammation and the irritation from the arthritis and the problem becomes that muscle imbalance. And, and I'd equate it to, if you know anybody that has lower back issues, you know, those issues might start with the ting of the back of the spine of the spinal cord with a disc, but then the, the, the long-term problems that they suffer for the next couple of weeks or couple of months is the muscles spasming around that. And a lot of that happens with these dogs with long-standing issues. And so his, his hips might be actually settled down and not causing him as much discomfort. It might actually be muscle in origin. And so I think that's the part that gets missed as well is we, we make that diagnosis and say, yep, the x-rays are such and such, but I've had some dogs with terrible hips that never limp a day in their life. You know, we'll get that five or six year old hunting dog that people are like, oh, he's great. I want to breed him and never OFA him at two. And we OFA him at five or six and the hips are just ridiculous, but the dog is well muscled and doesn't limp. Um, you know, that, that dog has hip dysplasia and arthritis based on an x-ray, but in his real, in his body, it's not an issue. And so that's the other thing I'd say is I caution people to treat, that treat x-rays and I'd want to get my hands on your dog or have somebody get their hands yeah. to feel those muscles. Is it, How much of it's muscle discomfort that we could maybe unwind a little bit and, and be proactive with? So that's interesting because, A, he was that five-year-old dog. You never, ever would have known it until he was old. Now, you know, now right. I notice it. And um, so some and, of it, so what I will say is that, and sorry to interrupt you, what happens at this point in time is actually most of those dogs start developing intervertebral disc disease. And so these dogs have been really athletic. You know, we think of our spine as a rod holding us upright and a rod holding them, you know, lengthwise, but it's a bunch of little joints. And you get these dogs out there, you know, spinning and burning and jumping over cover and, and, you know, making retrieves through muck or these, these other dogs, that spine is in constant motion. 
And so a lot of dogs are misdiagnosed as hip dysplasia dogs, and they're actually intervertebral disc disease dogs. And so especially where the spine meets the hips, that lumbosacral junction, in these, in, and especially in older Labradors, it, it starts hypertrophying and starts slowly pinching on that spinal cord. And so some of that slow-to-get-up achiness is actually spinal dysfunction because of disc disease, and we misinterpret it as hip issues or knee issues. And so I would contend if your dog didn't have much issues until later in life, I would bet some of it actually is, is, is originating from his back as opposed to his hips. And, and that's where, too, I think the, the, the physical therapy side of things can really come into play in the muscle problems. Um, you know, it, it would be different if you said, you know, he had hip problems his entire life, but developing later in life. I would I would wager all all of Kevin's money that it's it's his back. <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, I love what it. would you? Um, so real quick, I'm interested in the physical therapy side of things. Like, what would you? Yep. I mean, I guess you hear for for people, you know, low impact swimming, go for a swim. Is that something that you would right. do for a dog? Like, what would you do there? It, it can. So I usually start pretty simple. Um, in in identify where the pain and discomfort is because some of these dogs it's just a matter of actually relieving the muscle pain that they're experiencing and then they can go back to being fully active and so it's it it, it kind of depends on the physical exam um, oftentimes I'm finding a lot of muscle pain and so we're, we're stretching massaging dealing with the muscle pain and then doing targeted ground exercises to kind of strengthen those areas of deficiency you know, something as simple like with these older dogs that flop when they sit, doing sit to stands in, in a way that is like a body weight squat where you kind of feel where they're going to stop firing that muscle on the down sit. And then you have them stand up and try to get that lower and lower. You know, if we all stood up and ripped off 50 body weight squats, I can tell you the old guy in the group is going to hurt like hell tomorrow. Oh, I'd vomit. And, and the same thing. With, what's that? <laughs> I said, oh, I'd throw up. <laughs> Yeah, and so the same thing with these dogs. It's it's finding those imbalances. And so, you know, it, I think that veterinary rehabilitation has become synonymous with underwater treadmills and water therapy and things like that. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these dogs need that fine motor control is where their problem is, and it's the muscle pain. And so a lot of these dogs were doing home exercises, home stretching, and, and just trying to address these imbalances. And it, it kind of was hit home to me Um you know, I, I've had a cruciate surgery. I've I've had back issues. I was in a car accident, and then with the running, I've spent a lot of time with physical therapists, and they don't throw you in an underwater treadmill or in a swim tank. A lot of what you're doing is is firing individual muscle groups. You're you're you know getting individual muscle groups stretched, and I think that. And, and I worked with a lot of human physical therapists who are now in veterinary medicine, and and I think that that's where. You know, our tendencies as veterinarians or as people is we want to we want to jump to that end result and, and that finished product when at the end of the day, it's maybe that that dog isn't firing all of its muscles as it goes to sit down. It's not maybe knowing that its feet are placed correctly when it's walking and things like that. And so I think it's identifying those imbalances, those weaknesses and addressing those as opposed to jumping you know, to say underwater treadmills or, or swim therapy, um, you know, it, it, with Bob's dogs, for an example, I, I think identifying is there muscle pain and how do we address that? So it's, it's you know, not to sound like a, an advertisement for my specialty, but I, I think people that are trained in rehabilitation in sports medicine, we do physical exams differently. And, you know, I work with five other veterinarians who are super competent, 
you know, great veterinarians. My wife and I met going through rehabilitation training, but because she has me, she, she doesn't do those exams. And so, you know, even here in this practice with, you know, me mentoring and showing, I still, every lame dog that comes into practice, it's, hey, Joe, can you take a look? Hey, Joe, can you take a look? Because, you know, we're taught differently on how to examine these dogs. In veterinary school, we're taught that they're joints. You know, it's basically knees and hips. We don't, you know, but you think about it. I mean, that's, there's a ton of muscle. There's a ton of soft tissue overlying that. You know, when you sprain your ankle playing baseball, we don't jump into a surgery to correct that. It's icing. It's range of motion. It's strengthening that ankle back up. But for whatever reason with dogs, it's always been either drugs or surgery. And there's that whole middle ground in between that, that we've used on the human side for forever with physical therapy, you know, in sports medicine. It's just a new concept in veterinary medicine. That makes sense. Never all thought right, of it I that got, way. I got, I got some good questions here. These are all things that are popping in my head right this minute. So I'm writing them down, but I don't want to lose them. One of these things that you're talking about and and not that you're dispelling it, but you're just saying it's more case-by-case basis, um, would be the the water and and swimming. You're, like, going into a wading pool and, and working them out that way for physical therapy in the dog world, right? And yet, I feel like from a guy who does this for a living and a dog gets hurt every other day, you know, I, I'm skeptical sometimes of you you really got to trust your vet a but b there are some things that are just like what are you selling me and one of the things that always gets me is like acupuncture what is the deal with acupuncture on an animal and how do we even know if it's like what i'm gonna get asked blackballed from veterinary meetings giving all these answers (laughs) to these questions we're gonna have to scrap this whole show So, good, good thing, so, good thing. Three people listen. I know, mom. Don't, mom. Just, <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about it. So acupuncture is. It, so I'll, I'll tell you, I'm very Western in my beliefs. I'm very research based. I, I, very Western medicine. I do think that acupuncture has its place in veterinary medicine. I think the problem and kind of what you're probably seeing is what happens is people end up with you know, if they have a hammer, everything's a nail, right? And so you go and spend all this money on acupuncture class because it's not cheap. And then, and then you get really excited about it and you want to treat all these conditions for that, you know, that you learned in acupuncture school. And so to, to your, so people think of rehabilitation in sports medicine as, you know, the, the rehabilitation side, we have to use rehabilitation in, in veterinary medicine because the, the human people own physical therapy, but the, the, that part of it, I think, is one tool in a toolbox. I think acupuncture is one tool in a toolbox, just like I have, you know, a cold laser here. We have electrical stimulation. And I think – I don't want to say it's snake oil because I, I think people's hearts are in the right place. But I think the problem is is that, that people go to these trainings and that's what they use versus – I take a different approach. So I always joke that I practice holistic medicine, but with a W, meaning looking at the whole dog and the whole package. And like with our rehab packages, you can't come to me and say, I just want massage therapy today, or, you know, we're going to charge you 80 bucks to just use the laser today or the e It's you come to me, or if we have our drop-off patients, 
and then we choose what modalities that we're going to use, right? So if that dog needs laser, I'm going to use laser. If it needs e-stem, it's going to get e-stem. If it only needs stretching and exercises and not those other things, then that's what it's going to get. And so I think you're, the one point you make is probably the, the, the most important is trust your veterinarian. And I, I truly don't believe people are out there with ill intentions, but I think that sometimes people get tunnel vision and don't step back and, and say, why am I using acupuncture in every one of these cases? Why is every dog getting put in the underwater treadmill versus what is this dog's problem and how am I going to best fix it with this pro trainer? And, and, and I'll be honest, like, you know, there's dogs that I've had come in with like iliopsoas or stretching issues. If the trainer brings a dog into me, I almost universally will tell the owner that I'm not going to send the rehab program home because I know that it's not going to get done because he's got he's got you know, 20 other dogs on the truck and he's not going to do it. Versus that same dog that maybe owner handler owns with one of these nagging muscular problems, I'll say, hey, here's what we're going to have to do. But, you know, before each series, you're going to have to warm this dog up. You're going to have to stretch it. When you get done running the series, you're going to have to stretch the dog. Don't put it in the box. Either stake it out or put it in the cab of the truck where it can stretch out and turn around. And it's a completely different situation. It doesn't mean that, you know, these injuries necessarily have to be career-ending. But it's it's knowing what you're working with and knowing what your client is. You know, a, a guy that's got a bunch of dogs to work with is not going to have the same amount of time as that amateur that has one dog that's his entire life. And so, you know, the big thing is establishing that relationship with your veterinarian. I think that that point you made is spot on and and that your vet needs to understand what you do and what you're doing with your dogs and what's going to fit best to fix your situation. And that answer is not the same for everybody. It's just like we talked with the dew claws or spay and neutering. It should be Bob's situation. It should be Kevin's situation. It should be Joe's situation. And that might be different with the same dog if all three of us owned it at different times. I agree. So, cool. so your, your, your acupuncture question, I do think it has its place in veterinary medicine. Um, I'm more Western-based, so there's two schools of acupuncture in this country. There's the very Eastern school, um, and then there's more of it's called medical acupuncture. Um, and, and I do think there are places for acupuncture. And I think there's been some studies to show, like with dogs with back issues with electroacupuncture, and some would argue that it's the electro, not necessarily the acupuncture. Uh, but I, I do think that there is evidence that acupuncture has its place. So, like, one vet I saw, because Memphis doesn't come into heat regularly, she's like, oh, come on in tomorrow. We'll do acupuncture. Give me your give me your two cents. <laughs> <laughs> come on. So, no, it's what it, what I will say is, is I think that desperate times sometimes call for desperate measures. And so, you know, there's an incredible body of work of acupuncture and human infertility. And I think that that's probably where some of that, um, you know, information comes from. I mean, there's acupunctures in very Western human infertility clinics. And so that particular example, um, you know, that's where probably some of that extrapolation would that be one of my recommendations as far as a dog that I'm having trouble getting to heat regularly? Probably not. But could I cast a stone saying that that person that recommended is crazy? Not necessarily. And that's, I'm not, you know, you probably, no, I'm not either. You know, sweet, I'm not being diplomatic. Sweet woman. You know, it's, 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 it's I, I think there's probably some evidence with that particular condition that they're taking from the human side. 
Yeah. Cool. Now, another thing with the cruciate blowing the knee out, there's different ways to mend the knee. Yep. This is a super common dog sports injury. Um, I remember TPLO. I forget the other one. It's the only one you need to remember. That uh, that was going to be my question. What would you do if your dog blew a knee? Okay. So I will. Uh, so one thing I, I, I back up, and and I assume that you know you probably have a pretty big lab following with the podcast. I think it's probably one of the worst epidemics that we've had in labs ever. Take out EIC, CMN, CNM, any of those. I think the cruciate problem right now is one thing that just makes me sick because there's no test for it and because it's a fixable problem. I think there's a lot of dogs being bred that have had both knees fixed and people continue to breed those dogs. People aren't looking at their litters that are producing dogs that are having that and then going back and evaluating their, their breeding program. So I think as dog owners, as dog trainers, as dog breeders, that it's a problem that at some point in time in, in the lab world, we need to have a come to Jesus meeting about, um, you know, you go and spend three grand on a pup and you train them up and that dog blows its first knee at 11 months and misses its first season and blows the second knee at 23 months and misses its second season. As an owner, I'd be pretty pissed off. Um, and, and I see owners almost weekly in that almost exact situation. And, and so now they've had a, a, a two to $3,000 puppy that they're spending, you know, three plus thousand dollars on each knee and they got a $10,000 dog that they've never hunted with. And so before we even talk about fixing, I, I, you know, if if there's one thing that I could, you know, beat a drum about in the Labrador world, it's that we need to get in front of the knee problem and quit breeding these studs that have had bilateral knee surgery. Um, I don't know how you fix it. I don't know how, you know, until there's some sort of database, I think it's going to be a tough problem and it's not a one for one thing, you know, so it's not like an EIC where there's a simple test that we could say, Oh, this dog's a carrier, this dog's not, I think it's going to take some work. And I think that's why we don't have a solution for it. But I encourage all of my puppy buyers to ask that question about both parents, about litter mates, about offspring, um, because I think it's a horrible problem. And, um, it, it, I think it's unfair to a lot of these uneducated owners or unsuspecting owners to, to have to deal with this. So now talking about the actual procedures, uh, there's a lot of, can procedures. I jump in before you do that, Joe? Sure. You're not um, on my soapbox. I am. <laughs> okay. Screw your soapbox. No, I agree <laughs> with you. I'm excited for the next part because I think I know where you're going with it. What I'm wondering is, that's a lot of pressure. He's always wrong. Don't worry asking, about it. Yeah, pretty much. Do you think we're pushing our dogs further and harder and faster at a younger age? And nope. that could be, no, nope. okay. I don't. I'll, I'll, I, no, I don't. I think that there is a genetic predisposition. I say that, and I don't want people to think, oh, why can't we just test? Um, and there was, so... I did I did a podcast like 12 years ago, and I had a researcher on who who was a, a surgery resident when I was at Iowa State, and they developed a test for Newfoundlands for for a marker for cruciate disease, 
she went on to University of Minnesota, and, and they had developed the test for Labradors, and it's never come to market or fruition. And so I don't know if there was an issue with the data or what occurred there. So I, I think there's a couple of different categories um, when we talk about it. I think the, you know we'll get the young labs that are just freaking ripped that blow their cruciates that that you know even at 11 months, 10 months of age, and, and it's not dogs that have been you know at the trainer or worked really hard. They they were going to blow their cruciate no matter what. And so what we don't know is is it a collagen disorder where they're unable to build the ligaments correctly, and it happens to be isolated to that joint. Is it an inflammatory condition that, you know, there's more inflammation than there should be and these, these ligaments are fraying like a rope? But I, I think there's a group of dogs that those ligaments are going to blow. If you put that dog in a glass box with pillows, they were going to blow those cruciates. And so I don't think it has anything to do with that. I do think, you know, there, there's the athletic injury part of it. So you're going to have those dogs that just get the athletic injury they step wrong they step in a hole and they blow it out and that's a whole different category of dogs but i think you know going back to the spay neuter thing you know we know that you know spayed spayed females that were spayed early in life of certain breeds same with early neutered males are going to be more prone to blowing their cruciates and so i think it's more of a problem we've created in our breeding in our spay neuter selections things like that um you know so does that mean go and you know pound the the crap out of a young dog in in the name of working out? Not necessarily, but I think if if you're smart about that early work, you're not going to push a dog down this path if it wasn't already going down that path. So that would be my first answer to that question. All right, to you your soapbox. About... Okay. So no, the soapbox was the the breeding problem. So <laughs> I, I think that's the big thing. So is 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 you know we as dogs and lab lovers that people need to start standing up to this the breeding practices so what do you do with the dog that now has blown one or two of them and and um i've kind of come you know i've made a i would say 180 degree uh turn from where i was 10 or 15 years ago so there's a number of different techniques to repair cruciate ligaments and and the reason that there is is because there's not one that's perfect and so if there was everybody would use it um, and so I think that's the first thing that people need to understand is there's not, you know, this magical thing that, that is, is going to happen or that, that you can use. And you and I, they reconstruct everything on the inside. When we do that with dogs, it fails. And so everything we do is on the outside of the joint. And so the old technique and the technique that, you know, still gets used a lot and I think is a fine technique um, is the extra capsular technique. And basically if, if, what that does is you drill a hole through basically your shin, the shin of the dog, and then there's a floaty bone on the back of the femur. So that your, your thigh bone at the right above the knee, there's a floating bone back there that basically we pass high tension fishing line through the hole in the shin bone, wrap it around that floating bone to anchor it and create on the outside what that ligament was doing on the inside. Um, currently, so that for years, that was the, the technique I recommended in all dogs. I didn't recommend any of these osteotomy procedures. And the reason for it is, is that procedures like the TPLO are patented. And so anybody that has the money veterinary wise can go and learn that procedure. So you don't have to be a board certified surgeon. You don't have to have any, any experience other than having the money to go take the class. And so as a rehab veterinarian, I was seeing dogs that were cut by people that are maybe doing, you know, two or three of those procedures a month or maybe 
six or ten of them a year. And so those dogs were not any better than the dogs that were being fixed with an extra capsular technique. And so I didn't understand why we were doing this more aggressive procedure when we weren't having better outcomes. About eight years ago, I, we started working with a surgeon um, that travels to our clinic every two weeks. And even then, I, he, he'd, he's done thousands of the TPLOs, but even when he first started working, I still was recommending clients to do the extra capsular technique. It, it, it has, in my mind, it had fewer complications. The dogs are doing good. The TPLO is based on the angle of the knee. So you and I stand straight up and down, and we have gravity working to hold our knee together. We don't get that sliding motion. And so when I tore my cruciate in my 20s, I had it fully repaired. I had partial meniscectomy. They repaired the cruciate. If I did it now in my 40s, I would not. I'd have it cleaned out, but I would not go through the major recovery of having it repaired because I don't do a lot of those lateral movements. And so when, when I was playing basketball or playing baseball, it would act as a trick knee. I don't do those things anymore, and so I don't need my cruciate. Or if you look at the angulation of a dog, as soon as they step down, if they don't have their cruciate, you're getting that sliding effect because of the angulation of the knee. So a TPLO says, let's take away that angulation of the knee. And basically, instead of you know passing a, a rope, you're taking and cutting that lower leg bone in half with a circular cut rotating the head and then putting a plate on the bone. And so if we go back 10 years ago, I was seeing that procedure done by people who probably shouldn't have been doing it because they weren't perfecting their skills. And, and so I kept saying, let's do the extra cap because worst case scenario with a TPLO is if, you know, a dog goes out and does something stupid and breaks that plate or screws up that surgical repair, you could, you could end up with a dog that needed an amputation. We've not had any of those in my practice, but it is a possibility. And, my nickname in the practice is worst case scenario, Joe. And that was a worst case scenario I couldn't live with. So fast forward, I had a buddy who had a pointer who blew both of its knees out during hunting season. And like most friends and relatives, he didn't tell me until like May and then wanted to hunt the dog by fall. And so that dog, we did the first knee with a TPLO and he did so well that when it came time to do the second knee that I thought we were going to do with the extra capsular technique, they said, no, we want to do it with the TPLO because he did so well. So we did the TPLO in, in the other knee, and that dog hunted by that fall. And, and I thought, hmm, maybe I've been too critical of this procedure. And so then I started doing it in any athletic dog over 50 pounds. And now pretty much any athletic dog over probably 30 pounds, we do it. Um, we still do some of the extra caps, but the, the TPLO is based on the dynamics of the knee. And in the right surgeon's hands, those dogs do phenomenal. And I can't emphasize that enough, in the right surgeon's hands. So a TPLO is not a TPLO is not a TPLO. It's the surgeon's skill level, the number of good outcomes, and the number of those procedures that they've, they've done. And so then the next obvious question is, well, there's newer techniques like the TTA and the CBLO, and they must be better because they're newer, right? And I would say not necessarily, and in most cases, no. And so with some of those newer procedures, what they've tried to do is a less aggressive cut. Um, and some of that is to make the procedure easier for some of these people doing the surgery that maybe shouldn't be. Um, there's certainly a number of board certified people that are doing those other procedures and doing them well. But when I ask our surgeon about that, like, hey, have you learned some of these other techniques? His big thing is he would never want to be his first couple hundred dogs in a new procedure unless the science showed that it worked really well. 
And when we look at these dogs in dynamic situations, so they put them on like a fluoroscopy on a treadmill, we're kind of like a moving x-ray, the TPLO still seems to be the best of the group of procedures that we have. And it's probably the one you're going to be able to find a surgeon that has a lot of them under the, it's their belt with a lot of good outcomes. And so that, to me, that's the biggest thing is finding that surgeon that's worked on athletic dogs with a lot of good outcomes and has done a lot of those procedures. All right, cool. That's going to lead into this next little question. Um, so re- Kevin and I are from Syracuse, New York. Cornell is maybe 45 minutes away from us. I also just had an experience at UGA, University of Georgia. Um, For someone who has a major injury and they aren't in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to come see you, um, what are some, like, what are some of the leaders in these types of athletic injuries. And I mean, like if you had to give me the top five within a 10 hour drive. So if I'm in Syracuse, yeah, Cornell, if I'm in, you know, right now I'm in Charleston, my drive was UGA. So if, mm-hmm. if, if you were in Berkeley or what are some of the top vet schools or top places you would say, Hey, Pennsylvania guy drive to Cornell. Right. So Again, you guys working on getting me blackballed from veterinary meetings. <laughs> I, I, I will say that in today's world, the vet schools aren't always, with, with some of these specialties, aren't always where the best people are going to be. And some of it has to do with the work and compensation model at the schools. And so, especially on the surgery front, um, the, the surgeons make a lot more money than anybody else. And they're going to make in, in the veterinary profession and they're going to make that in private practice way more than they are at a university setting. And so I would say it's going to depend on the condition that where I refer. And, and I will say that from a surgery standpoint, probably the best of the best in most situations are going to be in some of the private practices. Um, and it, it's, it's tough to say like in most regions of the country, uh, you know, within a call or two, I could, you know, you, you, you can find those people. And that's, you know, I just had a call out of a a dog down in the Houston area today. Uh, I have a really good friend who's a sports medicine vet in Houston and he recommended the best surgeon in the area. And and that's where this dog is going. Um, On the East coast, there, there are a couple of, you know, really good surgeons um, down in Florida, out at Colorado state is one of the exceptions to the university rule their sports medicine department is, is phenomenal. And so, you know, if I was in the Rocky mountain areas, I'd be hard pressed not to go to CSU. Um, the big thing is kind of doing that research and talking with your veterinarian or with a veterinarian active. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say that these are your top 10. There's a number of people that are really, really good. It's just making sure that you're kind of vetting your vet when it comes to these sort of things and that you trust your opinion, it's, it's the same, you know, it's the same way on the human side. Like I'm, I'm pretty anal about, you know, who I go to. And I, you know, there's times where you, you go to a doctor and you get the impression that like you wouldn't trust their judgment on, on who they're sending you to. And, and I mean, something as simple as I had a hernia surgery two years ago, I interviewed eight surgeons before I let somebody cut me as simple as a, as a hernia surgery. But the guy I chose was, freaking phenomenal and i was moving snow 
the day after my hernia surgery where I had friends that had had hernia surgeries that couldn't walk two months later. And so I think the same thing applies is looking for that vet that has a lot of experience doing surgery on performance dogs and making sure that it's not blowing smoke because I think there's a lot of salesmen out there too. Um, you know, making sure that they haven't cut like eight dogs when they act like they're an expert. Make sure they've done, you know, thousands of the procedure that you're wanting done. Um, you know, especially with these performance dogs, we don't, you know, everybody has to learn and, and people have to, you know, somebody's going to be those first hundred dogs, whether it's me having surgery or my dog, I, I just, I don't want me or them to be that guinea pig. I agree. I could, yeah, no doubt about it. So I think that we, without blackballing you, I think that hammers home a good point. Um, and so it was, the thing I would say is it's not oh, – it, it, back when I was in vet school, it was the vet schools. They were the only choice, and all the best, best and brightest were at the vet schools. And in some specialties, that's still the case. And, and so, But with surgery, a vast majority of them have gone to private practice. All right, cool. Now, first off, I'd like to ask everybody to skip and go back 30 seconds and catch his Freudian slip. <laughs> what I say? <laughs> Breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. Well, Spoo, you got to the mind, show. Buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh my god. Oh we, uh, god. We, it All is right. getting late though. We haven't even gotten no, into I got, Listen, I I know. I got, now we're going to dive into nutrition and these are the last groups of my my questions for you. But that was awesome. I couldn't let it go. <laughs> Child. <laughs> oh. You're, I think it's your the, audio. Yeah. Yeah, that my ass. <laughs> You're the breast. <laughs> All right. Um now, listen, before I go further, everybody knows that Ukanuba is a sponsor of our podcast and a believer in Lone Duck. Um so obviously I'm gonna have a little bias. Um but before Ukanuba I fed Pro Plan for a long time. And I had dabbled in some other foods like diamond and, and whatnot. And I've got a lot of other pro buddies that feed different things, different foods for different dogs. But, you know, so I want to throw that out there. Um, but let's talk nutrition and let's dispel myths. Let's talk about what our working dogs need, what maybe the house dog who doesn't work as much as a daily training dog or a daily hunter that, is out there on a plantation running 20 miles a day. Um, we're going to, let's, let's dive into this. Um, and one of the questions that I had starting from being born, the mother. Okay. So I've got, we've got a small breeding program. Um, and we've got mo- expecting mothers are, they're impregnated. How are we, feeding them? Are we giving supplements? And then puppies are born. What are we doing? So I look at breeding females as kind of the ultimate performance animal. Um, when you think about it, we're, we're asking the most from their bodies and, and they're building these little bundles of protein and fat, which is what our, our performance dogs use. Um, the, so most of those dogs, I recommend having them on a performance diet and no supplementation. And so the big thing with supplementation 
is 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 that it can shut down the intrinsic systems and so you know one of the popular things for a while was like calcium and so if you give a, a pregnant bitch a bunch of calcium her body says hey i don't need to regulate my calcium because i got an abundance of this and then those pups are born she has a tremendous demand for calcium in the milk and we end up in trouble because we've shut down that system because she thinks she's getting enough from its diet so if you're feeding a well-balanced food, you don't need to supplement. And so feeding a, a good quality performance diet is important because if you think of what puppies are, they're just little bundles of protein and fat, and the performance diets are going to be higher in protein and fat. The big thing that I'd say is that those pups don't grow much during the first two-thirds of pregnancy. And so what you don't want to do is to get that bitch fat and then go into the last part of pregnancy with a bitch that's in over condition because she's going to be the dog that's more prone to um, dystocia and, and issues with birthing and things like that. So feeding a normal amount or keeping an eye on that dog's weight during the first two-thirds of pregnancy and then starting to amp that um, food up at the, the, the last third of pregnancy when those pups really take off um, is, is what's important. And then once they hit the ground, uh, you really can't overfeed those dogs. Uh, it, it's just, you know, especially when we're talking large breed dogs with decent sized liver litters, um, th they just need a lot of calories. And so making sure that we're not causing diarrhea and, and different things like that, but really getting those dogs a lot of nutrition is important. Same thing too with back when, when she's pregnant in that last third of pregnancy, those pups start taking up a lot of space in the intestinal tract. And so you might've been that twice a day feeder or once a day feeder. You really are probably going to need to feed that bitch multiple times throughout the day because so much of her intestinal tract is going to be compressed with those puppies and she can't process food like she was earlier in the pregnancy. And so making sure she's now getting multiple feedings throughout the day is important. Um, if she's got a large litter that, you know, even going to free choice feeding in that last third and then definitely when the pups hit the ground is important. I heard about folic acid. I fed bird extra, but I have a golden retriever that we, we bred uh, last fall, and I was told to do folic acid. So I gave her that some of that, and she was on Yukonuba large breed. What do you think While about folic pregnant. acid? Uh, yeah. And, and so one thing I'll say is, so um, that's probably not a formula I would have recommended for a pregnant bitch. And so a lot of the large breed formulas are actually kind of light foods because most people with large breed dogs have them as house pets and end up overfeeding them. And so, you know, the large breed adult formulas aren't going to be the most ideal for a pregnant bitch because they're going to be more restricted in, in calories and probably protein and fat and things like that. So Interesting. just one note there for future reference. Yeah. Um, I think with the folic acid, uh, you know, it, it probably comes again, like can we talk with the acupuncture, it probably comes from the human side of things in, in that, you know, they recommend women um, be on a lot of vitamins and minerals during pregnancy that help with fetal development. I don't know... I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a negative with supplementing with something like that. Um, I think the big thing is, is you know, supplementing with major minerals is, is where we're going to have problems, you know, shutting down the mechanisms within the body and things like that. So I, I, I guess I'd say I don't have an opinion on the folic acid, but my, my hunch okay. would be that I don't think it's going to be a negative. Fair enough. But next okay. time around, you would uh, definitely do a different food? I would definitely do a different food for a pregnant female. Interesting. That's good. I appreciate the advice. That's good to know. Would you go to the 30-20 sporting blend? 
I would, unless it's a bitch that has a tendency to be overweight and, and, you know, came through that pregnancy, you know, in really good shape, like on the large breed, then I might just bump her up to like a regular adult maintenance. Um, you know, or if she had a smaller litter this time, if she had a bigger litter or she struggled to keep weight on, you know, at the end of pregnancy and while nursing, then I definitely would go to the 30-20. Okay. That's what about people who say to feed up, start feeding and adding puppy formula? Not so, puppy formula, it's in like the powdered stuff, but like a puppy blend. Yeah, and, and the reason for that is is that they're higher in calories, and, and you're going to accomplish that with a premium performance. And so my thought is, you know, why not keep that bitch on something that we know works with their intestinal tract versus kind of completely. It's just another way to get more calories in those dogs. What about ice cream and pickles? (laughs) (laughs) No. So the the ice cream would be, you know, an excess calcium, which we talked about earlier. I'm teasing. Both teasing. Dr. Spoo, you, you uh, forget a... that Bob thinks he's hilarious. <laughs> well, I'm glad there was, you know, amateur comedy classes at, uh, uh, was it St. Bonnie? Yeah. That paid off. Yeah. yeah. Hey. That's right. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. They didn't call me funny bone Bob for nothing. <laughs> um. All right. Let's talk about the different performance foods. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to name some. You got Purina Pro Plan Sport. You've got Yukonuba Sporting Blend. You've got things like Tractor Supplies for Health. Um, and then other companies. And I'm not asking you to rate them. I'm not asking you to talk bad about one versus the other. Um, and then a grain-free diet. Um. I get well. I guess I am sort of asking you to talk bad about one versus the other, so I don't want to do that. Um, no, I mean, you want me to take a stab at this, and then you can pick it apart if you want yeah. to go further. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want you to have to like step on anybody's toes. No, I'm fine with that. So, because I think so, the big thing is, you know, let's give the disclaimer. You know, I do some consulting work for Yukonuba. I host the Fueled podcast, which is sponsored by Yukonuba. Um, you know, so I, I obviously have my personal favorite. Um, I think, you know, to go back to your list, I think the, the easiest one to pick off is the grain-free. And so I think, you know, there's a huge body of evidence to support that we're seeing issues in dogs fed grain-free diets. And kind of the, the, um, the catch term is that we're calling them Beg diets, B-E-G for boutique, exotic, meaning exotic ingredients, and then the G is for grain-free. Um, it's not across the board. So there are major manufacturers that make grain-free diets, and they have not necessarily been incriminated uh, with some of the reports to the FDA. I think what you'll find is a lot of the smaller companies oftentimes don't employ um, veterinarians or nutritionists, and they're developing their formulas for the consumer as opposed to for the dog. And so I think that's where some of these deficiencies are coming. And what we're seeing is heart issues. Uh, and we have a number of hunting Labradors in our practice that have dilated cardiomyopathy. And the only, you know, commonality is that they were on grain-free diets or, or some of these diets that have been incriminated um, with, this, with this problem. And so I, I do think it's real. Uh, you're seeing a lot of pushback from some of these smaller companies you know, claiming that it's some type of conspiracy that, you know, between the FDA and these, these, these big companies, 
And I think that's bull. I think that, you know, we don't fully know what the problem is, but I think there's enough evidence to say, hey, there probably is a problem. Um, where I point at most people to is that the nutrition service at Tufts University um, and, you know, back to our commandant surgeon, I do think you're going to have a lot of good nutritionists at universities because there's, you know, not a lot of places where they're going to go out in private practice and make money. Um, and so between universities and, and, and the industry is, is where the good nutritionists are and that, that Tufts. Um, nutrition service has put out a lot of good information on this dilated cardiomyopathy. So if you Google Tufts veterinary and grain free, you'll come up with a good, a couple of very good articles that, that talk about that. So my kind of across the board recommendation is to, to avoid the grain free diets. I think too, with the grain free diets that, you know, they, they still use carbohydrates. And I think that's one of the, the things with the grain free is, is that they claim that, you know, they're more of like a wolf diet or whatever, but they still have, you know, potatoes and, and green peas and, and legumes and things like that. And we think those are where some of the problems are coming from. Um, and what I see with a lot of these expensive grain-free diets is the exact situation that demonized corn years ago, and that's ingredient splitting. So corn's never been an evil ingredient, but in cheap elevator foods or really cheap foods, it was used in multiple forms. So you'd have, you know, split corn, crushed corn, cracked corn, corn gluten, whole corn, and corn. And so you have a lot of corn in the diet. And what I see with a lot of these grain-free diets is they'll do the same thing. So you have this, you know, $125 bag of dog food, and it will have, you know, red meat as the first ingredient. And then it'll have lentils, and it'll have green lentils, it'll have cracked lentils, and it'll have, you know, lentil powder, and then crushed lentils. And so they're basically doing splitting of ingredients with, with these, you know, higher dollar ingredients. And so that's where I would caution with these boutique, exotic, grain-free diets is really read those labels and make sure you're not buying a bag full of green peas or lentils as opposed to, you know, a red meat formula like they're claiming. Um, so that, that we can just kind of, I guess, throw the grain-free out of your list. As it relates to the other diets, I, th I think, you know, the big thing is, is that there are a number of good quality major manufacturers because not every dog is going to do perfectly well on every formula and so you're, you're going to have some dogs that you could feed sawdust and they're going to do great but then you're going to have dogs of different lines of different types that do better on one brand over another because there's 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 slight differentiations between them and so um i think there's a lot of good dog food companies out there right now doing good research doing good things in our industry um i really strongly believe in eucanubis science um you know, if we take a look at their formulas, they use animal-based proteins. Um, you know, they don't supplement it with a lot of the grain proteins. It's all these fat sources. Their fiber sources have been chosen to help with intestinal health. Uh, the carbohydrate mix is to help with, you know, blood glucose levels and being steady over the course of exercise. And I, they just have really good science. Um, I've worked with the company on and off for the last 15 years. Uh, I was with, you did work with them when they were owned by Procter & Gamble. I've done work with them now. Um, and, and I just really like their science. And I have since veterinary school. So it's been a, a product that I've fed for over 20 years. Um, and it works for me. And, and I like how my dogs do on it. I like how they, how their, their coat quality, their stool quality and, and all those things. And so that, that, you know, is it, but is it the food for every single dog in America? Nope. And if anybody tells you that it is, they're a liar. It's, 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 good for a lot of dogs, but there's going to be some dogs that don't do well on it that are going to do well on other formulas. And that's why we have these other manufacturers is to, to fill those niches. 
the biggest thing I'd say is feeding. I, I would recommend feeding a major manufacturer that has an active nutrition team that's active in research that understands sporting dogs and is involved in the industry versus that marketing company that is telling you a pretty story but has no science behind what they're doing. How'd I do? That's what I, you nailed it. So that, that's what I tell people. Um, again, I fed pro plan for a long time. Um, what I try and explain to people is pro plan and Yukonuba have spent millions upon millions upon millions of dollars over the course of developing what the dogs are eating in their bowl tonight to make sure that they're getting the right things that they need. And the new hottest with a cute end cap at Petco that says your dog's a wolf hasn't or most likely hasn't. And so we're, (laughs) excuse me? I said they haven't. We we not most likely. We can just say they haven't. (laughs) Right. They haven't. They're just good at marketing and catching your eye that this wolf is eating a duck and your dog's eating a duck blend. Um, and so I, I just really hammer home that the two companies, you and ProPlan, are doing right by our niche, our industry, our working dogs. And from luckily being invited to the headquarters, you can do, but we, Kevin and I got to see the science behind the food. You know, they're testing the urine. They're testing the feces. They've got dogs and cats all over the place from for the course of their life, testing teeth, testing taste, testing joints, testing everything to try and bring our dogs, our, you know, animals that, that go out and hunt with us and are laying on the couch next to us to try and bring them the best. And, you know, I guess I'm kind of on a soapbox right now being a salesman for them, but I'm not saying one versus the other. I'm saying those are the companies that are pouring millions of dollars and doing it right, not trying to make a million dollars by spending a million on advertising. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I think that that's what's lost on most consumers is that, you know, everybody wants to think that they're an educated consumer, but so many people are sold on a marketing story and, and not on what's right for the dog. And, and to kind of further your point, I think, one, people don't understand the amount of research that goes into these major manufacturers versus the, the, the zero research that goes into these smaller brands. And I think the other part that people don't understand is that those big guys have to play by a certain set of rules because they're under a regulatory microscope. And so there's only certain ways they can say things on a label or claims that they can make that the smaller companies don't have to play by that same set of rules. And so, you know, I think it's foolish when people say, you know, X major brand is, you know, trying to kill dogs, which makes zero sense. Or that, you know, making claims, outrageous claims on, on packaging labels from some of these small companies, and it purely has to do with they do not have to play by the same set of rules. And so I think that, that you know, these folks that fancy themselves as, you know, a super um, educated consumer, I think that that's the question that you need to ask yourself. 
am I buying a product or am I buying a story and how is that product developed? And, and a vast majority of the companies outside of these major ones are doing zero research, zero science, and they're telling a marketing story. How do you pick the right formula? And now let's hammer on you, Canuba, for a second. How would you pick the right formula for your dog? So I think the, the, the big thing is is understanding your dog's needs and true activity level. Um, I will say that most people in the active dog, sporting dog realm overfeed because we all want to think that, you know, we, we, we do have performance. Dogs. I don't say we think we do, but we want that high energy formula because it says performance dog on there. And I've always felt like that was a, a poor marketing decision by these companies to label those foods performance foods uh, because there's dogs that perform at a very high level that just don't need that. I, I think they should have been labeled like a high energy or an extreme exercise. Um, you know, so I think the first is determining your, the activity level of your dog. Uh, you know, if you have dogs like my setters that are, you know, covering 20 to 40 miles a day, four to five days in a row out west, that dog's burning a ton of calories and needs the fat and protein versus, you know, if you have a dog that is doing, you know, retrieving three ducks on a, a, a you know, early October morning where the temperature's pretty mild, you know, that dog at the end of the day, its activity isn't that much more than the pet dog that's chasing the Frisbee at the dog park and, and doesn't need that performance diet and will do great on a maintenance diet from one of these quality manufacturers. And so I think the big thing is, is really looking at your activity level, not necessarily whether your dog's a performance dog or not, like how much time and energy is that dog burning? And is it, you know, that of a normal dog? Because there's a lot of dog owners that are very active with their dogs that aren't hunting, aren't, you know, hiking, aren't doing these major expeditions or, or, you know, major outings, but they're very, very active. And, and, you know, your dog may be a high performance dog, but it, it may not be burning a lot of calories during those performances. So that that's the first thing, determining the level of activity level for your dog. Okay. Let's say somebody wants to switch their dog to a new formula. How would you do it without messing up their system as well as how long does it take to see results? So I'm kind of contrary to most people with this question. I, and, and maybe it's laziness, but I hate blending foods. Like I'm not a guy that does the mixing and like I'm at 20% now and now I'm at 50% and now I'm switched over. I basically go cold turkey um, and, and, but feed a lesser amount. So like just keeping the math simple, if my dog got a cup a day, if I switch to a new food, I may do, you know, a half a cup for a day or two and then inch them up to three quarters and then back up to a cup. I think if a dog's going to have problems, it's going to have the problems, whether we do a slow switch or not. So I just would rather bite the bullet and get it done with. And so I usually do my switch just over like a two to three day period of feeding a lesser amount and then, and then ratcheting back up to where I'm eventually going to, to be. Um, and again, if, if you're going from quality to quality, and so the difference would be if you were feeding, you know, not to knock on anybody, but, you know, Old Roy or some, you know, real cheap food and then switch to a high quality food, that may be a tougher switch because you're going to go from a food that you had to feed a pretty high quality of to a food that you're going to have to feed a pretty low quality of. And that dog might be pretty irritated with you. 
But if you're going from a pretty reputable, high-quality brand to a pretty reputable, high-quality brand, or even switching formulas within brands, I, I don't do an exhaustive switch. I just switch them and go for a lesser amount for a couple of days. Okay. And then deal with the consequences if they occur. Uh, but my contention is that, it, you know, if I would have done the slow, the, the slow switch dog that's going to get diarrhea, would have got it if I did it fast and I just get it over with sooner. I'm with you. Speaking of diarrhea, do you have uh, a home remedy for somebody? I, this question came in, so <laughs> it does part nicely. Excuse me real quick. Let me just take hit the head. Um, <laughs> do you have recommendations? This came from somebody. So, again, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's in there. Home remedies for loose stool um, or a medication. I mean, I know what I give, but a home remedy or something. Yeah, so my home remedy is is 24 hours don't feed them, and so the the digestive tract does a wonderful job of repairing itself if we give it a chance to. The big thing is to to don't restrict water. So we want that dog to drink because we don't want him to get dehydrated. But oftentimes, just laying off food for 12 to 24 hours will solve the problem. And so I think what happens is that we all want to be actively engaged when we perceive that our dog has a problem. And this is for that dog that has loose stools, but otherwise it's fine. So if your dog feels like crap, looks like crap, it's also vomiting and it's sick, that's a whole different category. But that dog that just gets loose stools occasionally, you know, people want to come up with these, you know, homemade diet concoctions or, you know, have this arsenal of drugs. And really at the end of the day, like skipping a meal or two is going to be your the best treatment that you could ever do. And so that that's with a healthy dog. That's my best home remedy is to skip a meal or two and let the digestive tract repair itself because it's wonderful at that. Very cool. What's your take on puppy formula? So I, I think probably the, the most important thing we do for our athletic dogs is how we feed them during that first year of life and feeding them a large breed growth or large breed puppy formula is super, super super vitally important. Um, they're, they're designed for slow controlled growth. Uh, it's cheap through two things. One is through restricted calories, but with good high quality protein to build that dog that you're going to be using later in life. And then the other restrictions are with the calcium and vitamin D levels so that that bone is laid down at a slow, steady rate. And so restricted feeding of a large breed growth formula more than anything else I do in the vet clinic, more than anything else you do in that dog's life, I think is the most important thing that we do for a dog. So speaking of Eukanuba, what about their puppy formula? I mean, theirs says less than 24 months. I mean, I guess. Right. And so it, goes, it kind of goes back to our spay and neuter question is when that dog reaches skeletal maturity. And so, you know, they're encompassing, you know, with that large reef formula, it's not just are hunting dogs. You're going to have like Great Danes and Newfoundlands and, and other breeds that maybe don't reach skeletal maturity until 24 months that are going to need to be on it for that long. And so what I would say is, is trying to get that dog out to skeletal maturity. So like for most labs, it's going to be in that 18 month ballpark. The one exception is going to be is as that dog gets older, if it starts getting, you know, more active in training or struggling to keep weight on the dog, we may have to switch sooner than that. Um, not to plug my own podcast, but on, on uh, one of these first episodes that we released, I, I had a, a long talk with Russ Kelly, one of the nutritionists, 
uh, at Yukonuba Royal Canine uh, about this subject. And, and we kind of went into that very question in detail and what that looks like with a performance dog that maybe we have to switch sooner. And so, like, my, my young setter, um, he came to age, he was like, how old was he when hunting season started? Like, nine, ten months, nine months. And I struggled to keep weight on him with the large reef formula. And so I ended up switching him to performance a little bit sooner than I would have liked. But it was either that or have basically a skeleton with skin on it out in the field, which isn't an awesome look for a veterinarian to have. Um, and, and so it, it, it's being, you know, conscious of those sort of things, too. So getting that dog to skeletal maturity or as close as possible is important with the exception of some of these hardworking dogs that as they start getting close to that year of age, if we start ramping up that training and work, we may have to switch them to either like a maintenance or a performance diet to, to compensate for those calories that they're burning. All right, cool. So I got two questions with a Purina pro plan. They have a, the, the 3020 and the 2616 is an all life stage. And so when I was feeding it, I was feeding it to eight-week-old puppies all the way up to eight-year-old dogs, et cetera. What is your thought on that? Boy. So now you're trying to give me black balls from, you know, most of the events they sponsor. So what I would say to the all-life stages claim is what it doesn't say is optimal for certain life stages, right? And so – there's things that you can do that are okay. And then there's things that you can do that are best. And that's where I would say the difference is feeding a formula specifically formulated for a growing large breed dog. You're going to achieve optimal and the best conditions for that dog feeding a product that was designed specifically for those conditions versus the all life stages label is you're probably not going to hurt that dog, but it does not say optimal. And, and, and that's a big difference. And so where, where I get frustrated with that and, and it was, it's, you know, I have friends on that side as well. And in uh, a number of veterinary friends that work on the veterinary side of that is that that's one of the things I actually hate. And one of the first conversations you and I had is, is that one size fits all, um, I don't want to say it's a, a, a lazy thing, but it's, it's much easier if you have 30 dogs, if you can have one bag of food, but it doesn't mean that those 30 dogs are all being served the best they could be. And so what some of these all-life stages formulas, instead of being at optimal levels of, say, like the calcium and vitamin D, they hit them as close to that as possible to hit the widest range of dogs. Versus if you take a look at like a large breed growth formula, I believe, and, and someone could call me a liar, but I believe the bags will say not for breeding and pregnant or pregnant and lactating bitches because they aren't designed for those types of conditions. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of that good, better, best, or, or, you know, trying to be as, as the best that we can be. You can go through life you know, looking for mediocrity, or you can try to, you know, freaking knock, knock it out of the park. And I think that that's kind of what happens with some of these formulas. You could feed that dog and it could probably have a perfectly healthy, normal life. But with all of this stuff that can go wrong, I want to put the odds as much in my favor as possible. And so I want to do what's optimal. And, and that's where my recommendations for these large breed 
growth formulas come from. And, and the other brands that say all life stages, they have those large breed growth formulas. And so my contention would be, why have those formulas? And the answer is because that's what's best for those dogs. Right. Um, you did call me lazy, by the way, at that dinner. <laughs> and look it we're good friends now hell yeah now i feed i feed three different formulas um, I, it's but it was a great learning experience truthfully i know we're kidding but it was a great learning experience to say like this is why he gave me a great answer and on our you know you intro when i give the sponsorship i say I feed this for this kind of dog. I feed this for this and I feed this for this because it's not all one size fits all. Um, right. So now my, my second question is to parlay that would be, I've had dogs that are struggling to keep weight. There's many factors. They're super hyper, uh, probably high metabolism. It's not that they work more than the dog next to them. It's just who they are. And I really, to your point earlier, you're like, I can't be a veterinarian and have a skinny dog. Well, someone could post a picture on Facebook and say, oh, Uncle Bob from Lone D is starving his dogs. Well, no, you son of a gun. I feed more than I'm supposed to. And this dog just doesn't put weight on. But I can't have, I legit cannot have a skinny dog on my truck. Now there's, I, I would never have a fat dog on my truck but I would rather err on the side of healthy, fit, hourglass, but I can't have skinny. I cannot have it because of perception. And, and you know, I can't have it. So there, over the wintertime, I was really, really, really struggling with a few dogs. And they were on our blend, right? They were on 30-20. They were on puppy blend, whatever. And I've done a few things, and I want your opinion on it. One. I tried what's called a satin ball, and I, I'm assuming you know what that is, but for everybody else, a satin ball is this internet concoction, and it's beef, molasses, oats, uh, eggs, all sorts of stuff, and you roll it into a ball, and you feed it to the dog to supplement their food. So let's say I'm feeding that dog four cups. It's not gaining weight. I give them a, uh, a satin ball in the morning, satin ball at night. And within a week, miraculously, you put on three pounds on the dog and it's starting to look normal. And you can wane or like wean the dog off of that satin ball. Well, some of the dogs that worked, some of them that didn't, that's fine. Again, Dr. Food, you know, I don't, I'm going to keep going with it. But like, there's one dog in particular that it didn't work. And so we slapped food to that dog like nine cups a day of 30 20 and yes she had looser stools but we got her up to a normal like normal working weight you're not seeing hip bones you're not seeing every single rib and spine and it worked and now she's back down to five and has held that weight can you help walk me through that a little bit and and your thoughts on just that comment I don't know if I can. So I, I, I've not heard of a satin ball, um, and and so I, I'll plead ignorance there. Um, 
you know, I, I, what's weird to me is that you, you had to go up that high and come back down. Um, I would, I would suspect that maybe the dog was having some issues with, um, you know, breakdown or it took it, took it longer to, to, you know, get used to the product. Um, you know, you, you'd ask, and I didn't answer it, uh, you know, how long to see results and, and like, you know, switching from like a, a maintenance formula to, to a, a performance formula, it will take at the cellular level, like eight weeks for those cells to be able to use the higher quantity of fat and things like that. And so I might hypothesize in that dog that it took, you know, that long for the intestinal cells and the other cells to say, Hey, you know, we can actually use this stuff and here's, you know, how we're going to do it. And that's why you've been able to, to walk it back down. Um, but I think it goes back to, 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 you know, the, the, the comment on the different brands and the different manufacturers is, you know, you're going to have that dog within a group of dogs that, you know, just doesn't do like the rest of them on some of these formulas. And so, um, you know, it, 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 we can't go back in time, but that would have been a dog. It might've been interesting, you know, to, to, to feed maybe a different protein source, or a different, you know, completely different type of skew of food to see how it did. Um, I've had a number of dogs in a training situation and, and, and more in pointing dog kennels. And I've, you know, had people, they're usually hesitant to try this, but sometimes backing down quantities on a skinny dog and, and doing, you know, multiple feedings to get that weight back on. I think that there's some of these dogs that we give them, you know, we advocate once a day feeding some of these sporting dogs, and I think some dogs just can't break it down and, and, and handle the quantities. And so there's, again, creating more work for people. But I think there's some of those dogs that need to be fed frequent to, in order to maintain weight because I just don't think that their body processes the food like most dogs do. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's, you know, those would be a couple, I guess, of my thoughts on that situation and why you saw a change and, you know, if it happens again, maybe a different path or different, you know, track to try would be a completely different, like, protein source or a different type of food, so. That's cool. So if I run into this again, I should feed maybe three times a day to that dog. I'd be tempted to do that, yeah. Okay. All right. Very good. I mean, because, again, perception is, is king, and I can't, I, I just literally cannot have a dog that gets off my truck and have clients who are here training with me or their owner come and see his dog and be like, boy, he's lost a lot of weight. It's like, well, A, he's working and B, I'm feeding his ass more than normal. And I, I just, I'm doing the best I can. Well, doing the best you can isn't the answer if the dog to that person seems unhealthy. Um, right. So, and I think you know, one thing I'd got, like to point out though, is, is in that situation, cause it is, you know, you, as you see, you handle enough dogs, you're going to have that dog. It doesn't necessarily mean that the dog has a health issue or is unhealthy or shouldn't be worked. Um, and, and, and I use my own dog as an example, you know, like Boomer, when he was younger, we'd go out West and hunt for three days. And, and, you know, I, I've always struggled with setters on road trips eating well. And so we'd go and hunt hard for three days and we'd come home and my wife also a veterinarian, what the hell did you do to that dog? And he was happy, healthy, everything, it, but he was on such a narrow line that, you know, over three days he could go from looking nice to looking emaciated and it wasn't anything we were doing wrong. He, you know, in a couple of days of eating normal and, and, and not being out west, he'd, he'd conditioned back out. But I certainly was hesitant to bring him to work those days. And so, you know, I think there's sometimes that perception with these working dogs of being 
too skinny. And, and oftentimes it's not the, the case. It's that a lot of these dogs that, you know, end up in a situation that's maybe new to them, working hard, that get a little bit thin, are maybe at the lower end of that ideal scale. It's just that most people aren't used to seeing a normal or thin dog because there's so many overweight pets. Um, I, and I, I completely understand your perception and, and with clients and, and it's more of a general comment for these working dogs. Um, I, I've had, you know, GSP owners or pointer owners, you know, turned into humane societies for too thin a dog. And, and like the dog is a perfect specimen. It's just that people are, you know, there's times that I wonder, you know, should that person with the, the dog that's 70 pounds overweight, should they be the one turned in? Because that's the right. dog that's actually going to have health issues. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I know that as well. Like it's better to be a little bit less than, than too much more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something we all in our industry battle and right for, for that particular dog, that's how we fix it. Um, but anyways, Joe, Dr. Spoo, I want to thank you for being a part of our show. This was one of the most informative and enjoyable educational podcast we've had so thank you for for doing that for us your knowledge is yeah man it was it was so much fun so everybody i want you to do me a favor joe has started a podcast with you canuba tell them a little bit about it joe and where they can find it and how they can follow you on instagram and and if they're in your neck of the woods and need your expertise how can they find you sure so the the podcast is called fueled um, and it's available everywhere uh, that you can get your podcast. So if you're a podcast podcast listener, uh, whatever app or service you use, you should be able to download it there. If you're not, you can go to the, the You Can Do a Sporting Dog website, and it's hosted there as well. Um, kind of our take with it is to have experts in the field on the podcast, and so it's going to be a combination of uh, veterinary dog health experts and then dog trainers such as yourself, um, it, who you'll be on one of these future episodes, um, trying to bring the best of the best to the conversation, whether that's on it from a health standpoint or a nutrition standpoint. Um, you know, we have upcoming episodes with a tick-borne disease expert um, or on the training aspect of it and to get different perspectives from some of the leaders in the field. Uh, and so I'd encourage you to, to take a listen. Um, as far as on, on social media, I, for 20 years I've been Gundog Doc. Uh, on Instagram, it's at Gundog Doc. On Facebook, it's gundogdoc.com, I believe. And then we're in the process of, of reworking the website. So if you go to gundogdoc.com right now, it's going to be more coming soon. Uh, I'm working with a, a, a local graphic designer and um, web company to relaunch the website. I think it's about the fifth redesign we've done over the last 20 years. Um, and I'm just excited with some of these other projects going on to, to really kind of ramp the gundogdoc.com site back up. Um, as far as practice, I practice in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at Best Care Pet Hospital. Um, I think our website is bestcarepethospital.com. Um, we're the only specialty clinic in kind of our three-state area here uh, or four-state area. Uh, we're the only clinic between Minneapolis and Omaha. Uh, with specialists and um, you know I've had people come from all over the country uh, with sporting dog questions so if you, you're out in this neck of the wood chasing you know pheasants grouse or ducks uh, look me up um, or you're going to go through Sioux Falls on your way to those hunting destinations. Thank you so much Joe it was a true pleasure 
to have you on. Thank you so much. Everybody, if you enjoyed this, please do me a solid. Go check out his podcast. It's called Fueled. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to give us a little subscribe, you know it won't hurt my feelings. So, Joe, thank you for being a part of it. I look forward to being on your podcast and and our future friendship and relationship, bud. Hey, if you haven't done it already, jump into patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Couchers. If you enjoy the show and want to support the show, if this show has helped you and your dog grow together, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer and you get more one-on-one from me. You get content that doesn't hit Instagram or YouTube and it enters you to win a free hunt with me and Kevin in Missouri this duck season. So jump on, links in the description. We'd be happy to have you and love to help you. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.